you guys were too high and no one hit record. <laughs> it was your, it was your podcast equipment. Yeah, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, we're just talking about being high right now, doing podcasts. Are we live? We're live, baby. He deleted my podcast. Like he, like he thinks I have the authority and the know-how to know <laughs> where the delete button is. On Before the he was the richest man in the fitness business, it was just him. It's very not. It's verifiably not the case. Before he was the king of the fitness business, he was the only one pressing record on his podcasts. You scrapped it. Now Laura was there. Laura was yeah, there and she was really high. Sorry, Laura. Are you serious? So she was also really high. Why would bet. you let us record all of us a podcast? And uh, you were the only. Sober. I, I had zero to do with it. I was just. You we were there because the, of you. The facilitator. I was just. I just paid the Airbnb. And the rest happened. I don't. I don't even remember what you guys talked about. And I wasn't even on it. He's so far removed being the king of the fitness <laughs> business now. Well, Doesn't even remember what it's like to press the record <laughs> it's button. It's going to be one of these, is it? No, well, no, we're not going to go down that path. Last no, podcast okay. we were together, allegedly. Jordan might have got a short end of a stick on his personal life, which we will not be doing today. No, Jordan, Jordan Shallow, uh, founder, prescript. Big deal, the biggest deal in fitness. Marcus Naloni, strongest Jew in the world, here that, with us That's today. a fact. That, that is actual fact. That's actually that's a fact. Just say, that's true. You know, so. I've told people that. They don't believe me. Yeah, well, well, really? Yeah. It's a touchy subject. You're so... <laughs> I think just by size... Guy, no, do they, <laughs> do they just not believe you're Jewish? It just sounds incredible to say something like that out loud without having a way to verify it, but judging by the rankings... Yeah, openpowerlifting.org, verified. Yeah, tell, right. tell, tell people about your lifts. I'm tell the strongest you. Jew in the world. Squat is... Uh, 400 kilos, bench, uh, 881, I deadlifted 881, I bench, it's, it's, who cares? Literally everybody that wants to be strong. And okay. Can we talk about, actually, can we talk about Marcus just being casually strong and not even caring? So actually, am I. It's the most annoying uh, thing. decided to do a meet just last minute, and I guess I'm strong. That's okay, you want to go down this road. Here's the thing. I was obsessed the whole time. That's how we all met, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Jordan and I, friends of the podcast, you don't know, Jordan and I, one of the earliest memories is us competing in that uh, animal cage together. Mm -hmm. Also where genesis of this uh, <laughs> tripod of a friendship springs about, am I right? A lot of donuts were eaten that weekend, but I mean, yes, I've achieved quite a bit in the powerlifting world. Eventually it becomes too much to keep up. I don't take it casually. I just kind of take it in jest now. But it was a lot of work. You guys know. I mean, it's tough on the body and the mind. You, you can't just keep doing it if you're half-assed mentally. But I think the thing that bothered everyone was that it just wasn't your identity. And that's what we loved about you. Was that powerlifters, and second you have a 2K total. Like, you're the only, I would say that you're one of the only people in the world that was, has been actively competing who does not have their total in their Instagram bio. You know why? Because you're not a douche. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because people who make it their whole personality don't have anything else going on outside of that. Lift, uh, okay, this might hurt some feelings, but lifting weights is not cool. Sucks. The act of, like some people, and I know we are just talking about this off air, but the whole idea that you are, like, 
valuable or successful because of the fact that you go into a gym and pick up dumbbells is the craziest notion that's ever come out of the fitness world. Well, now, is there value than doing it better than everyone else in the world? If you ascribe it value, but I'm just saying, like, to try and make it, to try and sell yourself as a success in the fitness world, just based on the fact that you go into the gym and, I don't know what it is. I see it a lot on social media nowadays. It really bothers me. You see people who are attributing. I know. I know what you're thinking. Don't don't smile at me like that. People who identify that way, I I, I don't. I can't do it. So yeah, I mean, I can't make that my whole personality because just honestly, nobody gives a shit. I don't give a shit. Like we were I, saying, the most casually strong person on the planet. We're not friends because we all lift weights. I don't, you know, you guys don't care about that. You're the only, you're like the only two left at this point. And none of it has to do with lifting weights. I'm the only person sitting here without a 2,000 pound total. I don't have a 2,000 pound total. Okay, well, Jordan's lying. <laughs> <laughs> what were your best lifts? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, uh, 200 kilo, uh, so, sorry, uh, 441 bench, 749 squat, and 755 deadlift. Not bad. Not bad. That's not 2,000 pounds? Not 2,000 pounds, 1949 or something like that. If you convert it to Canadian, the exchange rate's like plus 30%. With the exchange rate. Yeah, it's sub 1,000, the exchange rate. People are going to start doing that with the Canadian exchange rate. They don't have the GMOs we got down here. Right, right. Trudeau just not authorized. Yeah, it's, uh, they've got some crazy laws coming coming your way. I have a lot of friends who love sending me American memes that I need to ask for screenshots of. Because when they send me pages, I just I can't see it. Yeah, so it extends to memes beyond news. I thought it was just news you guys couldn't uh, get. They're sending me memes about news. Everyone's got their shoes on. Yeah, welcome. Relax. This is your place. Yeah. They've got the Versace socks on. I think they made a song about that once. Yeah, they uh, they're called work socks. Work socks. They're work socks. You guys, this is the podcast outfit. Yeah. I think you're dressed well. Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. Thank you guys for coming. And uh, Marcus flew from whatever exotic location he was at. Um, Portugal, I don't know. It was Portugal. Yeah. I, yeah. Thorne's just here casually training NFL athletes. They're not in the NFL yet. Uh, they will. <laughs> yeah, we got a couple months. All right, well, the 2024 season might beg to differ. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll, go, we'll go backwards. Uh, Alright, what, what are you up to right now? If, if you can even say. Uh, yeah, I mean, where do you want to start? Like, Let's the say, business side is... Yeah, yeah, just like kind of what you got going on, like what you're in town for type of thing. Yeah, so recently we take, we've taken our education company and we've merged it with kind of like a passion project that I've been doing for... In fits and starts for the last decade, I've been a part of the NFL Combine preparation process. So I paired with Yo um, Murphy in Tampa Bay, Florida, who runs a facility that I used to be affiliated with on the medical side. And what we did was we took our curriculum of applied biomechanics and functional anatomy, and we gave these kids a practical, hands-on experience at coaching people at the highest level. So it's, I always uh, compare it to seasonal retail. Like if you are a manager of the Foot Locker, it's like, oh, fuck, like December, January, I'm going to need way more people. But the second the holidays are over, it's like I don't need all these kids. That's kind of a plight in the pro sports world, especially in larger concentrations of training blocks in the private sector, like NFL Combine Prep. So kids will finish their college season, 
you know, depending on how well they do, some are still playing into you know a national championships. Some are done if they're injured; they'll be done November, October, and then combines not until February, late February, early March. So it's an eight-week block where these you know these kids coming out of college, transitioning into the league, they'll declare for the NFL draft, and they'll go to various facilities across the country who are sort of well suited in like the technical and tactical of football, whether it's like the training, whether it's the rehab, whether it's the skill work on the field, and for ever, for as long as I've been a part of this process, which is like over ten years now, the influx of help, the influx of staff has been so low quality for an asset that's so high quality, so high value, so. They're bringing in, you know, facilities will bring in interns for free labor, but these interns, you know, this is going to directly impact the course of these kids' lives. And a lot of these kids, and you know a lot about you know, football, especially in the South, they're coming from situations where, you know, every rep, every set could be the difference between, you know, going back to, you know, abject poverty or taking their entire family and creating generational wealth. So it was like, well, it makes no sense to me why we have the best talent with the worst help. So through our curriculum, what we've done is we've given, you know, our students, hopefully a strong base in uh, applied anatomy and um, uh, or functional anatomy, applied biomechanics. And but coaching, teaching still on the Internet makes no sense to me, even as someone who does it for a living. It's like, well, we got to give them a proving ground and I want it to be high stakes. Like most of the people who come through our program, the personal trainers or coaches or physical therapists or chiropractors, but like they're kind of they're the guy or girl in their organization. So they, they walk into a gym, they're like the one that's well-known, they're like the smartest person in the room type thing. When we bring them out here, there's levels, right? So like, you know, it's, it's something that I've actively been doing and a part of for unbroken for the last five years now, and then periodically for the five years before that. Plus, Joe Murphy, who's won a ch- championship in every professional football league that exists on planet Earth. He's won uh, European Pro uh, CFL, and he's also won um, a Super Bowl. And he's also been coaching for 17 years. So what we did now, and we just finished it, so if I'm half awake during this, I apologize, uh, is we just took our first cohort of students who have gone through level one, level two, and we brought them in to actually help manage and train and rehabilitate the first week of athletes coming in for our combine program. So they'll stick with us for eight weeks here in Tampa Bay and then go to the combine, and then in April they'll get drafted. So that's what we've done. We've taken what we, you know, we think to be theoretically on paper the smartest kids when it comes to applied biomechanics, functional anatomy, resistance training, even as much as like sprint mechanics or rehabilitation. And we've put them in the room and offered them an opportunity to kind of like prove their, mm. prove their chops. And it's, it was great. You know, we, the athletes, will, they see the difference, they feel the difference. And then hopefully as this continues on, you know, we see the difference with the numbers on the 40 or the 225 bench and, you know, they notice a difference in the numbers in their bank account. So that's like immediate just off the top of my head what I just did today. But, yeah, there's 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 some levels to it. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> I mean, can anyone, I mean, can anyone sign up for it? Is it like you, they need to start out at a certain area or do you invite, is it invitation only or? So we do level one, level two. Uh, so you have to go through the level track first. Yeah. And especially with like that being the proving ground, it's like we need to be able to speak in shorthand. Like I'm not going to use the word jargon, but like we need to be able to relay things very technically, very quickly. And if you don't have the under the underpinning knowledge to be able to take in what I'm saying and then enact it in real time, that's that's high stakes, and we can't really afford opportunity costs when we're dealing with athletes like this. So level one, level two gets you like very 
uh, in tune with what you're going to see in real life. Because uh, that's where all of this stuff exists. It's not just the stuff to learn for the sake of learning. It's learning for the sake of applying. So, yeah, level one, level two are, is sort of the spine of our curriculum. We have, like, ancillary courses outside of that. But those two courses really prepare people for, okay, if you understand these concepts well and you go through these courses and you pass, because you have to actually pass to get, get to this level, then you've sort of proven, at least theoretically, when it comes to resistance training, you're at a position where you can be in the room. And I think that's something that our industry probably hasn't seen, at least at this level. Like, anyone who's been around a college weight room or a pro weight room, like, it's not, it's never aligned the best talent and from a player's perspective, from the best talent from like a medical or a training perspective. So we're trying to, we're trying to narrow that gap. Uh, what do you think, like, uh, I mean, kind of like the basis of the whole podcast, you know, it's kind of just the different path of kind of making it, right? Because there's probably, you have a degree, chiropractic degree, right? So there's probably another 5 million people that have it. And then the, the other 4.99 million people, you know, they just end up with populations, 50s, 60s, 70s, bad backs, well, people like me, bad back or whatever, you know, and it's always like, oh, I really want to work with athletes. You know, I really want to do blah, blah, blah. I really want to do blah, blah, blah. So what's like, what's, what's the difference? You know, I know this is like a lot of years coming, but it's like, well, you, I know, I know your story, but not everyone does. You decided like, well, this is what I'm going to do. And I only want to do this. Right. So it took you a long time to get to where you're at. We're working with NFL athletes. It's just a, this is like a normal thing for you. But so let's say level three, this is like a, a holy shit. Like, I would never have access to this if it wasn't for this. So, like, the, the chiropractic graduate who wants to work with athletes, right, would you say, like, your program kind of puts them on a fast track to it, one, and then two, you know, you kind of blazed the trail, kind of made it easier for people because there was no trail for what you wanted to do, right, coming from chiropractic. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, first I don't think, uh, I mean, like, I know a lot of people that you're referring to, like, by face and name, a lot of people who want to work with athletes or work with athletes. I think the one differentiating factor is like the, the respect they have for athleticism. Like I didn't think for a second that I deserved to be in a room with an athlete. Like the second I graduated, I'm actually very surprised that uh, nine years out, I'm in the position I'm in. But I think that's the number one thing that differentiates people who should work with athletes versus don't. It's like, do you actually respect what you're seeing? Like the physicality of what you're seeing? Like, can you watch a game and watch someone like, sure, it's really objective in some cases. Like, oh, he, like, ran faster than the other guy. It's like, yeah, but, like, do you understand the mechanics? Like, there's a, there's a, there's a purity to it that when you really enjoy the, the reduced essence of what you're watching and you can kind of tell, I mean, no different than, like, I don't know, a sommelier with wine. To me, it's all fucking sour grapes, right? But to some people, like, you know, I went to school in the San Francisco Bay Area. Like, they, there's, there's hints and hues and tones and all this. It's like most people who want to work with athletes, like really not laid the foundation even from like a passion perspective to, to deserve to work with athletes, right? Because they've at least put the time and reps in of getting good at what they do. And so it's like at least you could put in an equal amount of reps in understanding what they do. So I think that's like number one. That's the big thing that like gets me with people who, you know, they get into chiropractic or they get into some sort of primary entrance care position, DPT or doctor of physical therapy or something like that. Or even MDs, they want to work with athletes. But it's like, you have to meet them where they're at, right? Like, I think a big part of part of where we've got to relatively quickly was, like, you know, I, I, I had so much respect for what they did in all capacities in all sports that it's, like, I 
worked for free and I still continue to work for free, probably more than anyone I've ever met. Um, there's that stupid scene in that fucking Batman movie that got quoted to us in school. It's like, if you're good at something, don't ever do anything for free. I was like, oh, cool. Like, what are you, fucking Heath Ledger? Get the fuck out of here, right? That's the, that, is the, that is the antithesis to, the, to an attitude of someone who wants to get far. So I think that's what fundamental is, like, we, re, we reinstate across the board in all our courses, like, because the, you know, the precipice of what we teach is with athletes. Because, like, if you can tune a Ferrari, like, an oil change on a Civic should be a fucking joke. So it's like, why not teach people to coach at the highest level? And if athletes aren't your bag, like, look, sometimes they're late. A lot of times they're late, right? Sometimes they get hurt or sometimes they, uh, their agent is, wants them to go to another training facility. Like, you have to deal with a lot with athletes that you don't have to deal with general population. So it's not for everyone, for sure. There's, but still, even that increases the allure of wanting to work with them, right? Like, oh, they can be difficult, but... I think it's the understanding that like you need to put in the equivalent amount of effort and hours for free that they did to get there. Right. Like, I mean, you, you grew up in a part of Florida that probably turns out some of the best football players. Like there's from Florida down to parts of Texas is the highest concentration of crazy freak athletes on the planet. And it's like, it would only make sense that you need to put in the legwork. So one thing that like, there's two curriculums. There's obviously like the curriculum of like, you know, muscular insertion, origin, action, function, nerve supply, artery, like all of the things that comes down to like knowing biomechanics really well. But then there's also like the in-between-the-lines curriculum of like, you know, do you know the difference between a guy that runs 4.45 and a 4.38? Like you couldn't tell the difference. Like most people who got come into like a level one class at first couldn't tell the difference. And they, and they don't respect the difference. Because why would they? It's like one point. What's 2. the difference? And I'm asking as somebody. Oh, you'd have I to. Know. I mean, it's 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 visual when you look at it. Like I could watch it without a stopwatch and tell you by technical, like oh, how long did the guy stay in the acceleration phase? How smooth was this transition into max velocity? I could tell by those attributes how quickly a guy ran within like probably a couple hundreds of a second, right? But if those 1.2 seconds don't mean enough for you to be able to differentiate and notice the qualitative differences that result in the quantitative output, then don't do it. And that's the thing. It's like everyone wants to do it for like clout and, you know, the athletes are obviously like really famous, but you're only good if you can make the best better. And a lot of times people are just, they get into it, just stand next to the guy who does something really well. And look, there's, utility in that John Elway's strength coach always used to say that his only job was to make sure John didn't trip over the weights in the weight room which like John Elway also played football like a long time ago so it's like kind of like this is new age shit like we can make people better we can get people recovered faster we can program more efficiently like we can actually make them more athletic so it's instilling that respect from the get-go and not allowing for like the entitlement to sort of propagate so that's something that like i'm pretty strict on is like it's it's a privilege to be able to work with people at that level and you need to you need to earn that you don't just just because you go through this doesn't mean that you're going to get ability to walk in the room i've done too much on the personal side even like you know whether it's on the business side or just myself to make that room a place where people can go and then i'm not just going to offer that up to anyone yeah like down you know back at like the boss days right so what, what was the balance because everyone's going to be like you know pretty much what you just said they don't want to they don't want to work for free when people ask me you know they, they talk to me about business stuff and there's a lot of my friends now i tell the same thing you just 
you have to be valuable to people that already have value, you know, and then increase theirs, you know, and then yours kind of floats up with it, and that's just how it works. But, you know, back in the boss days where it was just kind of car living sometimes, you know, from what I know, um, kind of that balance between working and then providing that value where it's just like, I'm just grateful to be here and have any opportunity, right? So what was it you were doing? You were doing regular chiropractor guy stuff at that point, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, yes and no, right? Like being at Boss is already like pretty unique in like obviously not in the, I don't want to say the pro athlete space, but in something that resembles the realm of athleticism without shitting on powerlifters more than our friend Marcus. Well, in, in that timeline too, that was also Dan kind of peak time. Yeah. You know, while you were there, experiencing it too. So yeah. He was. I mean, he was top in the world. So it was the best of the best. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's what it came down to. Like, can you make the best better? And then it really distilled down to, like, well, how can I solve more complex problems faster? And I think that's where, so alongside of me working at Boss, I was also working at Apple. And I think that was, like, a big catalyzing agent for me because you work with powerlifters, especially if you're working for free, they're just stoked, right? They're stoked. It's not, you know, we don't have healthcare and powerlifting. So if I'm the free healthcare, then they're just excited and they put up stuff on social media. But it was really, I think it was really the experience at Apple that started to um, like crystallize my thought processes about things and really start to see things um, in a systematic way, which allows me to solve problems faster. Because at Apple, like they weren't ever trying to be rude, but you're dealing with like double PhD, MIT, Carnegie Mellon, like high functioning through the fucking roof. Like these people can't look you in the eye, but they're so inquisitive. That's why they're so smart. That's why they work at Apple. So I had to dispense with a lot of like kind of the lore that I was taught at chiropractic college. Like there's chiropractic college is this weird element of like, I guess familiar with the God of the gaps theory. Yeah. God of the gaps theory loosely translates to like, if you're having an, uh, an argument or a discussion with a religious person, anytime like logic starts to trump or there's a, there's a hole in the, you know, the readings of scripture and people would kind of throw their hands in there. You're like, well, you know, God works in mysterious ways. Chiropractic had an element of that where it's like, well, you know, like the adjustment. And we're like, you can't play those games at Apple when your clients are I mean, fucking know, the CEO or the CFO. Like these people are not, if they're inquisitive and give a shit, they're not going to, like, understand that. They're not going to accept that. They're hyper-logical by the nature of their job. So you're like, I had to really start to, like, oh, like, what exactly do I know? Like, the first two, three years of my career were just a brutal self-audit, which was terrible because I'm like, wow, I spent a shit ton of money. I'm homeless and in debt. I'm worse than broke. And I actually, <laughs> the thing I paid for set me further behind the eight ball. So it was, like, a lot of, like, unpacking Okay, what are, what are the lines inside my own brain that are things that I can say definitively? What are the things that, you know, I can say anecdotally with so little experience at the time? Um, and then how do I start to communicate where I'm brushing up across those lines? Um, and how do I even bring people to those lines? Like understanding that a lot of times you're entering a room with someone with no practical understanding of the, you know, the underpinning anatomy or biomechanics or whatever. So how can I take someone from, God, when I was at Apple, our patient visits were 15 minutes with me and 15 minutes with an assistant. So 15 minutes to take someone from who's a complete novice in the, my field, explain in ways they can understand an issue they're having, a prognosis, and then how we're going to fix it, um, while still towing that line of like setting realistic expectations. So that was where, 
And it was such a contrast. Like, it couldn't have been more of a contrast of a patient base. Like, I would go in and, oh, Jesus, I think we'd see, like, 250 patients a week. Monday to Saturday, 12-hour oh days. And then, you know, when, whatever time I had before or after, I would go into Boston train and treat people. So you go from, like, my neck hurts from coding to, like, I think my hamstring is torn from deadlifting. And it's like, okay, these are two total ends of the spectrum, both from personality type and from, like, injury exposure. And so, yeah, that was kind of the start of it where, you know, a lot of the professionalism and high stakes came from, so a lot of the professionalism came out of, you know, working out of Apple, but simultaneously, there's no high stakes at Apple. Like you can rub their shoulders, they're, so, they're stoked, they feel great, they'll book in because it's highly incentivized for them. But the power lifter who's like, I think I like, I have grade two tear in my hamstring. It's like, well, you don't have money and don't want to come back to see me because you've already paid me for this visit. So how can I... Basically, how can, I, uh, how can I take the money from the guy at Apple and then use that to keep myself alive enough to treat a guy who would actually mean something, right? Because although you're getting this great um, uh, interpersonal experience at Apple, like learning how to learn quickly, the, the manual side of it and, and the cognitive side of it is like mind-numbingly boring because you could do anything to a general population person and they'll feel better. So being able to like mix those experiences in real time, like I came out of my first couple of years in practice and was like a very, very different person, clinician, practitioner, trainer, coach, everything, just because I got these two polar ends of the spectrum in such like a high frequency and pitch that that is what's sort of, you know, because you need to have both at this level. Like you can't just be a hole in the wall practitioner. Like you need to have conversations with agents. You know, you're dealing in increments of, now hundreds of millions of dollars and you're to be responsible so like you kind of have you know having that buttoned up approach that you learn from the corporate world but you know when the agents are gone and you're just dealing with a kid that is going to bench 48 reps at 225 like he wants to know that like hey you're right there with him too so it was a it was an interesting uh coalescence of experience and, and that i think really started to set the stage of like okay like it was really the environment that, you know, you said like whatever, 4.99 million chiropractors are all probably not going to do it. It's like, well, they're probably not willing to put themselves in those situations either. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when talking about uh, the difference in the board and stuff like that too, I remember uh, I've been following the NFL for a long time. I think his name's Matt Jones. He's an Arkansas quarterback. I don't know how many years ago. Didn't last long in the NFL, but he was whatever, 6'5", you know, 230 pounds. Goes to the combine, runs a 4-3 as a quarterback. White guy. Rare. Uh, ends up having, like, whatever, 38 or 40-inch vert or something like that. And I think he ends up, I don't, I don't know what round. It was one of the first or second round. He ended up going in from being, like, a fourth-round guy. You know, so the difference between fourth and first and second is very many millions of dollars. Mm. You know, so we talk about the difference uh, between 4-4-5 and a 4-3-8. It is a lot of money in its draft positions and everything like that. But going back to kind of what you were saying what, uh, with college, you know, when you were like, oh, just spent a lot of money, set me back. Is that kind of the, the beginnings of the prescript or what you thought of where it's just like, wow, there is a better way for this or there is a gap that needs to be filled? Or what was, I guess, mm. the original thought? We're like, I can, I can make this better. Yeah, so my business partner and I used to meet and commiserate about our financial despair. <laughs> That's sort of how it started. It's funny because we got the idea from two of our professors who like clearly had a silver spoon. Um, one of our professors used to talk about meeting up with this other guy who practiced in the area. It was like a common internship site for kids who went to our school. 
and they're like, oh, yeah, I'll use his name. I don't give a fuck. Like, this guy, Ty Pence and Bram Patterson. They're like, yeah, you know, we used to go out on our boat, and we would talk about business. I'm like, you motherfuckers. Like, I'm a quarter in the hole, and you guys are talking about, like, the fucking Catalina wine mixer. I was like, all right, well, Jordan and I were the only ones who really stayed, and we were the only ones who cared about working out. He was CrossFit. I was in powerlifting. So we would meet up. And then, you know, we would just try and cook up harebrained schemes of, like, how we could make more money. And like, we were always niche for, like, the barbell athlete mm-hmm. in the area. He took CrossFit. And if anyone came to me that was had CrossFit in their blood, I went to, I sent him over to him and vice versa. So we're like, all right, well, how can, like, the way we would manage injuries would be a lot with exercise or, like, load management or technique management. Like, some people just got hurt in CrossFit because they sucked at lifting weights. And Jordan would just be like, okay, well, like, don't do this squat, do this squat, and don't do that, do this, do this. So we're like, well, how can we scale that? We both started with some intent of like growing an Instagram presence to monetize. So we collectively kind of got together and we're like, well, okay, what are your most common patient cases you see in a week? And it was like elbows and knees and shoulders. And I was like, all right, like, what do you do? So we kind of wrote it down. And then he asked me the same question. And I kind of wrote it down. And sure enough, like with, you know, we're, we're oddly similar for growing up in different parts of the world. And we had like more or less a... a, a an overlapping ethos on how to manage injuries. So the company started as like a training company geared towards writing exercise programming for people who were looking to rehab injuries, but we're further along and further progressed than your geriatric physical therapy, like banded, whatever, clam, external, whatever. Mm. So it was kind of like we carved out a bit of a niche and then we actually started our podcast six months before we released our first product as a, in a deliberate effort to build an audience to sell to. And so that's where the kind of the company started taking off. And then uh, me not knowing anything about anything, I thought the best way to get an Instagram following at the time was to do like instructional educational videos. Kelly Starrett, like Supple yeah. Leopard early in the CrossFit game. He mm-hmm. lived just, I don't know, maybe 45 minutes up the road in San Francisco. So, but then it kind of makes sense over time. Like I was selling training products, but I was posting very little about training. Um, I was posting a lot about like education, rehab, and then just did stuff on YouTube for a bit. And over time, I, I mean, like I guess kind of the big break was powerlifting, ironically enough, was I, I had met this gentleman by the name of Imad Nayef, who's from Melbourne, who used to host Boss of Bosses Meet. So Boss of Bosses Meet, anyone who ever is familiar with, with that, uh, that um, chain of meets that you'd always see on top, it would say Dame Group Presents boss of bosses and you'd see like you know American Barbell Club as a sponsor and that but I remember asking Dan after, before the, the first or second boss of bosses like what is this Dame group and he's like well Dame spelt backwards is Emod and Emod was this like powerlifting aficionado um, you know, big proponent or big advocate for the sport in Australia who would sponsor boss of bosses in the states and he came over one year I had no idea who he was Dan asked me to like work on him in between. He'd never finished a meet before. He'd always cramp up. And he's like, could you work on my friend? And now Ahmad is, I don't know, like, I don't know. sorry, Ahmad, but like, I think you're 140 pounds maybe. And he's just a big, you know, he loves the sport. His son Max competes. He owns a couple of gyms, part of like a gym franchise all over Australia. And I was like, yeah, dude, like I'll work for free. That was kind of my whole thing. So at a, on a table in the back of this powerlifting meet, I worked on this guy, and he made it. He made it through. Like he made it through his first meet, and he had like was that boss two or something. Boss of bosses two, yeah, yeah, the infamous boss of bosses two. And you know, two years later, I got into competing, did well in my first meet, and did well in my second meet. And then I get a Facebook message from Emod, 
now I know who Imad is. And he's like, you don't remember me, but I, you, know, you worked on me, helped me through my first meet. Would you come compete at um, uh, Pro Raw, the Arnold Classic in Melbourne? Mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, yeah, that's cool. It's like, dude, I've done two meets. Like, this is nuts. Like, I'm going to go compete in another country. He's like, we can't pay you, but you can do a seminar to help pay. We can host you and do a seminar over here. And that's really what set this whole thing into motion, was competing at Pro Raw 9 in 2017. Was that your first uh, seminar that you did? Um, yeah, probably. Yeah, in I think Australia. In Australia. In P so I ended up doing three mm -hmm. that year. One at um, his gym out in Frankston, one at PTC South Melbourne, and I flew out to Brisbane to do another one. And so, yeah, I did three three-hour seminars, and that was kind of it. So powerlifting was kind of the, the gateway into it, and I was really only doing a seminar to help me pay for the trip to get over there. And then I did them, and we got you know, good enough feedback, I guess. And then the shift of the company slow, well, maybe not slowly, it started aggressively shifting towards education. Yeah, and then, yeah, we got. Do you remember, like, do you remember the seminars? Any of them, first ones specifically, where you're like, wow, like that is pretty accurate, or wow, I was fucking retarded. Um, I think the general themes were similar. I think they've done nothing but expand in complexity. Yeah. Uh, and I think now it's. There's, I'm not going to say I'm good at it. I've, I've tried and I've done it for a long time, but I think there's, there's an overwhelming sense of trying to provide value in the first couple that you don't really, in, your, in my mind, providing value is giving as much information in three hours as I can, knowing or not knowing that the audience probably couldn't digest 90% of it. It would probably be better off of me honing in on this 10 percent getting them to know that really well so looking back i think uh as far as content wise goes like i would say there's nothing i'm like oh god like i'm really you know, sorry i taught you that uh but delivery it's like i'm sure people who were at that first one and i don't i also i did charge a lot which made me sleep a little bit better at night looking back i was like god if i would have charged you what we're charging now like i would have felt bad but looking back on it, it's like, okay, there's like understanding how to read a room and being like, you know, what is the, ex I can understand now on a stage with like five, 600 people, like what are the words where I'm losing people? And I can like start to edit on the fly where there, I was just like so nervous, palms sweating, trying to be as smart as I could in this room full of people I didn't know. Um, so that would have been like the biggest change between then and now is like the presentation and relaying of the concepts. The, yeah, I, I don't think I had some any egregious oversteps or anything like that. I don't think I was in the hospital right now cursing my name. And now you're uh, just well known for just gratuitously saying fucking every seminar is what I hear. Yeah, I mean, I, a good one if you're in the UK and Australia is you got to lead off with cunt. I think that's that's that uh, really yes. separates the weak from that's the chaff. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny. I do this event in the UK every year, and they always put me after like the like the biggest speaker. I'm like, dude, why is like why am why is this guy the lead into me? And I'll usually make sure that I'm like really because at the end of the day, like, and that's where this industry is going so sideways. Is like, especially in the the academic presentation space, it's like I do so much of my work on the gym floor that like if I'm in some conference somewhere that is the farthest from the most important room that I'm in in any year. I started thinking of something while you were going going into kind of the details, the day-to-day -day of what you do with the NFL guys. And it makes me think about the fitness industry too, you know, as I've always been one foot inside of it, uh, you know, competing. It's very interesting to see how few of the people 
or teaching, competing, are really good practitioners of both of those things. So somebody comes to you and they look at you, you seem to be a trustworthy source of news and information when it comes to strength and conditioning because look at you and you have a track record to prove it, right? And it also seems like on the athlete side, at least at least where I've been involved, right, which is most mostly powerlifting, it's not a lot of guys that are super honed in on being good athletes and coaches. You see a lot of guys that are powerlifting coaches, weightlifting coaches. If I were to look at them, you know, I wouldn't trust them, you know, with, with a fucking like bench day program. And like, do you think that because you've done that, you've experienced it, because it's something you kept saying, you can look at an athlete, you have this kind of visceral appreciation, this acute understanding for how good they are, their performance capabilities, the difference between 1.2 seconds on a, on a sprint. How much of your own time under a barbell or in the gym has helped inform that as opposed to just the cerebral side of things? I think that all compounds. Mm. Like, I think the time I spent reading neuroanatomy textbook compounds in the gym and the gym time compounds and the understanding of, like, the, the deeper sciences and the time spent watching whether it's like videos I've recorded of 40 starts on my cell phone from Indianapolis or in training. Like, I think it all compiles. Like, I think it, each one is like a, a, a pixel in a high resolution picture. So I, I wouldn't say that any one is more important than the other, but you definitely notice when one is not there. Um, so yeah, I think looking at it from, you know, on one side, the I'll air quote my contribution to the powerlifting world is I am not the strongest of any denomination I am a part of. Uh, from the, so it'd be my athlete. Strongest man in Windsor? No, definitely not. Kelly Branton, he's one of the strongest guys in Canada. Oh he's from God. there, so I can't he's buy from Windsor? He's from Windsor. Good Shout God. out 519 now. Really, what else is there to do? Fentanyl. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> crack cocaine. Lift up rocks outside? Yeah. Yeah, they're free. Yeah, they're free. Yeah, Crack Rocks and Boulders. Shout out with there. You um, really haven't sold that place, gotta tell you. It's, Nothing but disparaging comments. You know what? It, it definitely made me, that's for sure. Fight people? Sure. Yeah, if that's, like part, that's part of it. I had this, there was a linebacker who played for the Patriots who got a little punch drunk, and I ended up having, we didn't, end, we didn't come to throwing hands, but we had to be separated in a gym a few years ago. Uh, he, he was just... He just snapped on people, and he looked my direction. I was working. I was like, had a, I don't know, an athlete I was working with on the other side of the gym. And I turned, and he thought he said something to me. And he was talking to someone behind me. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm in the service industry. As much as I'm, whatever, in education or in pro sports, like, all of those things are, you're, we're all in the people business at the end of the day. Oh, yeah. So, like, I see an athlete looking over at me, and, like, like can I get you something? So, I'm like, oh, like, sorry, like, what do you need? Like, you know, get your water, get your towel, get your fucking protein check, put your car, or car around. Like, that's the level that these, these guys deserve. And he's, like, thought I was talking shit or something, and he took a run at me. So, I, like, what? literally... <laughs> what? He was, yeah, his name is... Yeah, I don't, know, I don't know if I want to... I'll share his name after. Okay. Um, but I, he I was literally... Is anyways. Yeah, it was nuts, but... You know, a linebacker, a linebacker, yeah, 6'4", 260. And Perfect. so like across the gym and I was like, I have no idea. Then I, I had a watch on the time. I took a watch off, put it in my pocket and took my shirt off. And it was just started advancing towards him. And then like everyone in the gym was like, is the medical director about to fight the linebacker? <laughs> and I'm like, well, fuck, he's charging at me. Like, yeah, I'm not going to not do it. 
because uh, the other option is worse. If you just stand there, he's gonna beat you to a fucking pulp. So I was like, all right, well, I'd be mean, probably gonna catch a few, but I'll go with my guess. But uh, yeah, so you know, shout out Windsor. Uh, well, okay, shout out Windsor. What happened at the end of the fight? Oh, and I got broken up. He wasn't the biggest guy in the gym by any stretch of the imagination. Right. We had a couple like big old lineman guys that kind of stepped in, and at the end, they're like, "Yeah, he's just like that." I was like, "Okay, occupational <laughs> hazard." Maybe he shouldn't be like that. Yeah, you know, CTE. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, but understand. But after, you know, because I was like, I don't know, there was clearly a misunderstanding, but he understood pretty well when I, you know, was ready to engage with him. And we were cool ever since. So that's how, yeah, how, how some men bond. But it, I mean, it, it does. I think it, I, I, in my experience, that part of it has helped because, like, you, you, at the end of the day, you got to relate to these kids. Now, some, some grew up in situations that I couldn't imagine. Right, but at the same time, they want to know that you're closer to them than they anticipate. Yeah, well, it's the idea that if you're if you're being coached by somebody in the strength and conditioning world, if you're a powerlifting coach, I want personally, I would like to know my coach knew what it's like to yank over 300 kilos off the ground or put it on his back or bench or whatever the number is, right? Because there's a certain amount of relatability. Who who, uh, who did you use for coaching? You were, uh, Sebastian Orb out of uh, out of uh, Sydney. So he's half Thor's coach, and he's got, like, a roster of just freak athletes down in Sydney. And, uh, you know, the funny thing about him was you know, his programming wasn't anything meticulous or well, uh, you know, it's, it's not, I want to say well thought out, but it's just it was very simple. And there's something in that simplicity that worked with really big guys, and he's had a really good track record with getting really big guys stronger, and I think – Part of that just has to do with the understanding of how to progress them and how to change loads and uh, give the body a little bit more time to recover. Because there's something about being over a certain body weight and over a certain strength that it just you can't function the same way in general population strength athlete. Yeah, I, I think a lot of that. I mean, I kind of roast them on the internet a little bit sometimes, but like the boomer powerlifting generation, it's like torn pec. All right, we're benching next week. Yeah, you know, like that generation yeah. of people where it's just like. I say it all the time. It's like, man, there's 165 pound kids out totaling you raw when yeah. you didn't, you know, multiply. You know, like I, I have, I kind of got no respect for it. I, I, I like the mentality because it's, it's just like trend out of your mind psycho mentality where you live and breathe gym, but then you walk in and like I said, that the anime kid is just out benching you for reps, you know, and it's just like deep down, like you've got to be hurting. If, and that's your whole identity. Yeah. And this is just like some casual thing that they do. I, I mean, I saw it at ABC. But I, what, what do you think is like, well, I mean, both of you, I guess, what do you think is the difference in happening? I, I would assume powerlifting is more popular. Talent pool is probably bigger. I was going to say that first. Yeah. Uh, and, and then probably I would imagine there's training. It has to be somewhat training-wise, but, I mean, there's massive totals now. And some outline, you know, you've got people like, like John Hack who have just been strong since forever. Right, and now he's been taking. I assume just a little extra creatine now and then, but still, he was the strongest or tested yeah. for a long time, and then now he's the. It's hard to have is. that that extra creatine conversation with somebody that doesn't understand powerlifting. It's like John Hack, if you took drugs out of the sport, he's going to be the strongest powerlifter there is yeah. on the planet. I, I I don't know what the difference is these days. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. The broadest way to look at it is they're probably being smarter. A lot of them. Uh, you're probably getting a lot more kids coming into the sport that understand leverages and 
that they're very good at deadlifting and you know they're going to put up an insane total because of that I don't know, even on the training side, because I don't know, you watch some of it, right? Like, they're, a lot of them train pretty intense and high volume, but you're not seeing... The one thing I don't see, and you tell me if I'm wrong about this, but you don't see a lot of guys that were, like, my size. You know, the, the 275ers, the 308 guys, like, the really big, strong ones. Like, there's a couple of them out there, but, like, <laughs> the guy that I came second to. So I was number two in the world in my weight class when I stopped. And the guy that I came second to, I didn't feel like I lost to anybody because of just I, I don't want to I don't want to get into it, but it just it him and I were not living the same life. I'm I'm gonna be happy to live until I'm old, and yeah. there's no way that guy is. Uh, to me, the part of it is comes down to incentive. I think with social media, we've recapitulated mm -hmm. the incentive towards the outcome, which. You know, process orientation is a great outlook on anything you approach, right? Like, oh, you got to fall in love with the process. It's like, well, yeah, but if you focus on the outcome in powerlifting and you're dedicated to the outcome, then it's easier to start to be smarter about your training. I think one of the things we saw with, like, out of the West Side era of powerlifting that, you know, torn pack, get your bench next week, is that the process was the identity, the total wasn't the identity, because no one knew. You were just the big guy with the fucking yeah. flame skull cat beanie at the local Shit. pool hall. Shout right? out Chuck. Right. Chuck right. But, <laughs> you know, because the identity was wrapped up in the process. It was, you were these crazy guys that went in and trained every day. Now, when you train, you probably trained harder than most people trained or actually tried at meets now. But, you know, as, as we kind of kind of talk about the education side, it's like, well, you know, there's clearly... No, not a utility in redlining it every day, which was the ethos. So I think social media gave people a, you know, a social media platform, no pun intended, so that they could, you know, they could talk about the process, sure, but, you know, social media people are going to put their totals in the thing. They're very outcome-oriented, right? A lot of people aren't process-oriented, which I think in powerlifting can actually be being process oriented, at least having your identity tied up in the process, can be very deleterious to the end goal of actually yeah. getting the outcome you want. So I think that's where you're seeing it is like people are like, oh, I just want to get this. I want to get a 700 pound pole. I want to get a 400 pound bench or I want to get an 800 pound squat or a thousand squat or whatever. It's like, okay, how do I do that? It's like, well, you got to train three days a week. It's like, okay, like for me and my training, like I'm very process oriented. I love going to the gym. Yeah. Every fucking day. Now, is it a part of my identity? Eh, you know, I'll get some crack at a... Gro I don't know, I don't go to grocery stores anymore. But I'll get some crack in public, like, oh, what do you bench, like, 600 pounds? And I go, yes. Yes, lady at Publix. I bench 600 pounds. I, I killed myself with 440. I don't bench 600 pounds. But I go to the gym every day not to get stronger. And I don't think I ever really did. One of the issues I had was, like, throttling back. Like, prepping for meat sucks. I'm like, wait... I'm pro I don't give a fuck about meats. Like, I hated meats. I got to wear this stupid wrestling thing. I look like fucking Coach Hines up here. This is so stupid. And I got a deadlift in it. Great. Everyone's going to deadlift this bar to my dick. So stupid. Why do you hate the deadlift? I just, I'm, I'm okay at it. I don't know. It's, <laughs> but it's the, only, it's the only compound lift I've never torn a muscle doing. So I, I kind of have a soft spot for it. Torn the pec benching. And you know, the, the, you're bringing up something good. This whole process thing. Because I... Throughout my entire time training, I never once cared what my total was going to be. I, you know, I, I looked forward to a 2,000-pound total, but I just all of that stuff just happened as an eventuality of going to the gym, 
working very hard every time, being very smart about it, and not thinking, oh, well, I've got to rush myself to this end goal, which is actually a pretty good business principle. You know, there's obviously some urgency in action that you have to have as an entrepreneur and running your own business and it's kind of the theme of this whole conversation, but it applies. I think there's so many parallels between training uh, and, and, and also running a business, starting a business, kind of the mindset you have to apply to both. Because you know, if you go in like a maniac to the gym, you don't understand the principles that are going to take you from day one to that meet where you get the total you want or whatever the outcome is. And then same thing in business. You know, it's there is some idea that being methodical is, is a very valuable asset to have and focusing on the day-to-day, -day, right? So if the day-to-day -day is email marketing or calling your clients or customers or lead acquisition, or what, whatever the case may be, it's the same as when you go into the gym. There's a beautiful parallel there. But I think there's, a, I'm going to like push back because I think there's a timeliness aspect of both that needs to be like understood. No, no, I said, I, that was, I led with that. I, I'm saying that that is extremely important having that in mind the entire time and being patient, methodical, doing those things every day so I, is no, a, is a when I was indicator. a kid, and my friend and I, my, my buddy Luke, my like original training partner, when I started training, we trained like absolute jackasses. But fuck, dude. Like when I was 18, 19, I was for like a gym bro doing barbell rows and squatting, not like ever anything in the competitive space, just someone who wanted to get big. And I can, I'll make the comparison to myself and the way that I've operated my business for the last eight years and how that has changed and almost alongside my training. But like... I think people nerf themselves or rob themselves from the ability to know what work is. And then all of a sudden their RPE scale for the entirety of their, their business life or their training life is always skewed, right? Because like when I went in and trained as a kid, I, everything was like a drop. I, 315, 405 barbell row oh, yeah. that was kind of like a jump shrug deadlift combination. All right, strip the plate. And I just, just run marathons with a barbell row. I'm like, this is fucking nuts. I'd do that now. I'd be in the hospital for like a yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. But I can consistently barbell row X because I think I have this foundation of work and tolerance within this position that I've established over years of just running my head to the wall. It's the same thing on the business side. Like when we started the business, and there are still waves of it now where it's like, you know, I, you have time, money, and energy, but very rarely do you have all three. It's like, well, I didn't have money. I didn't have energy, but I had caffeine and other drugs. So it was like, okay, I have energy and time. That's what I had a lot of. So it was like, well, fuck, I'm going to use those resources to you know, the 11th hour every single day. Now, as things started to evolve and similar to training, it's like, and I think that's something that when I hear like the business world start to throw itself up into social media and get clipped up in these little fucking you know, shared motivational things. There's so many people that when I watch them repost, like, you're never going to run into enough walls to know what it's going to take to throttle back. Like every lesson that's worth learning is a hard lesson to learn, right? And if you don't put yourself in that situation, people are like, oh, I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm only taking on this. Um, it's my first year of training. I'm only going to take on like 100 hours of clients a month or whatever. Or 80. No, nobody goes into business thinking that, that they're going to take it slow. Like, you know, same with me. When I first started, you attack everything as many hours in the day as you have to. Because yeah, you yeah, yeah, but you do. But the ethos around sustainable the business development doesn't factor right, but in. The, 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 my second comment, the one you said you're pushing back on, 
you only get to that point of thinking that of like, okay, here's what worked. Here's what I have to do every day to make that work, make this functional and viable. You only do that. I can only say that because I have money in the bank and I, because I, I make money every month and that's, you don't think that as the broke startup guy. Yeah, but a lot of the broke startup guys are taking advice from like the the seasoned vets that need to recalibrate so that they can use their time more efficiently. Well, right? Like a lot of people right now are nerfing their efforts in their business and they don't have the zeros in the bank account to do that and they they aren't willing to put it. It's impossible. You can't sit there. You talk from a position of success or at least some advancement towards success to the point where you can step back for 30 seconds. Like, I could step back for 30 seconds at this point and say, okay, there's a time and a place to do X, Y, and Z. Here's my philosophy behind this. And I'm not going to try to be a business guru. It's not what I'm here to do. But yeah, at the beginning, it's, it's an all-out effort. Oh, no, and I, I, we're saying the same thing. But yeah. what I'm saying is the general market for the tone around these conversations oh, is, yeah. is very much not that. And oh, I yeah. hate the demonization of hard work. There's nothing that drives me insane like people who are like, you know, I wake up early consistently even still because, and again, outcome oriented versus process. I'm very outcome oriented with my business. Like I know, I know the lifestyle I want to live. And it's like, and that's where people kind of like, you're like, oh, like, you know, you don't have to post it. You're up at 430. It's like, I don't need to post them up at 430 because I have a business that does this. This is what we do. You couldn't build this and do everything else I've done between the hours of nine to five in the last eight years. It's just not possible. So like, I don't like uh, the process of business development for me is almost the opposite of my training where it's like, I'm very process oriented in training. I just like going into train, but when I'm working, it's like it towards the end goal. Right, and I think that's where people get they get lost in, and they maybe invert it. They go very process oriented in the business, and don't get me wrong, like processes and systems are useful, but like at the people who talk about working hard or like on the grind up early, it's like, look, we get to infer that from the outcome that is your business. Like if someone has like a really successful business that's paying people's bills, that's providing a valuable service, that's scaled you know, and is, and is known and has a reputation, that's what grind and hustle is, right? That outcome is a byproduct of grind and hustle. Well, if you want to, if you want to talk about social media influencers and the way that they talk about business, that, that is a gigantic can of worms. The, yeah, you know what, they, you mentioned it a little bit earlier. It's like people who are maybe just graduating or don't really have a lot going on, they look to the people that are like so far up and above. Yeah. There's so many different phases to even get there, right? To get to just, okay, well, can your business generate enough to pay your bills? Instead, they're looking like, uh, yeah, we're going to buy our second private jet type of people. Yeah, you, you know don't get I mean? to, you're right, you're right. There, there's like a ton of right. in between, and it's just like, like, I mean, I'm a little bit guilty of it, where it's like, I look at these, I like, I look at these guys, and I'm like, oh, this is like, val- I, I pick like what I think is a value to me, right? But a lot of it is just so, like, like Grant Cardone saying, uh, well, if you don't make 400 grand a year, you're basically living in poverty and you can't provide for your family. You know, where it's just like, all right, well, that's a little, you know, when you're at that level, I'm sure you can say that because that's maybe nothing to you. How could you not take the private jet to Tampa? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. But there's so many levels of, of the in between where it's, you know, it's like, why, why are you listening to anything this guy has to But most say? people would be happy anywhere at the in-between. Anywhere between the broke startup guy and the private jet guy, yeah. probably up to 20% of the private jet guys. So you take even your, your mid-level seven-figure business, that covers the needs of probably 99.99999% of humans. Yeah, I mean, you know, 
in, in the last podcast I did, I talked about the real estate, right? And for me and how it changed my life, where it's like, I'm not pri- private jet guy, but I am doing well enough guy that I can give you this information because this is literally what I did. And this is how I got out of my shitty life situation, basically. Mm. And there's a lot of people who are successful. They don't know. There's, I mean, some of my family members are like that. They don't know exactly what they did to get there, but they got there. And then I start talking to more successful people. And a lot of them are just like, I don't know how I got to where I'm at, but it worked out because I just fucking worked on it. You know, it's not like they had an end goal of being X. It was just kept going. And I've kind of maintained that mentality where like, I personally, I don't really have an end goal. I'm just going to keep going mm. because one, I need it for mental sanity. I can't just sit around and do nothing. Absolutely. And two, you know, I, I just like nice stuff. That's just what it is. I don't want to live, you know, in a shitty fucking place. But yeah, there's so many different levels. And uh, I think a lot of the business advice, they're given these like 15 second clips of like this mental states to be in type of thing. Where it's like, all right, well, why don't you just tell us step by step how you fucking did it then? If you're that good at it and it's not, and you're not, you're not gatekeeping where you're at because a lot of them would be like, oh, it's, there's room for everybody type of thing. And I, I feel the same way. You know, if we were all in the same space, you know, it'd be like, okay, yeah, we're, we're all just going to bring each other up and that's how we are because, you know, that's who we are as people. But, you know, I don't think it's what these people do. A lot of people can replicate what that is, right? I don't think there's a lot of people who could probably replicate Prescript and what Jordan does pretty much for what he just said. Sure. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like, all right, well, are you going to spend 12 hours a day, seven days a week, live in fucking poverty for several years, and then eventually make it to where, and I, and I know, like, Jordan doesn't even pay himself a lot of money, you know? It's just like, that's not what it's for right now. There's a later, bigger goal, and I'll pay myself whatever, in 10 years, or whatever you decide. In 10 years, I'll pay myself a whole lot more than, I, I don't need it now, you know? Yeah. And that's for Jordan to say, but... It's a, a little bit of a different mindset then going from I can barely pay my bills to what the fuck does poor Mosey have to say today? Mm. A man worth hundreds of millions of dollars. I just think people don't, when they get into business, they don't really understand leverage. And I think when I started to understand like opportunities for leverage, that's when, that's when the process started to retroactively take shape. Like your best, and I tell this to people, like especially coaches, your best opportunity is your your most viable advantageous leverage point in front of you that's your best opportunity whatever that is so like we had seven kids with us this week and all from different backgrounds all from different parts of the world and you know they all want to end up kind of where they are it's like look you guys are here for the week but if you want to get back here so many different people have taken so many different paths and some people it's hard to take that first step it's like what is your leverage like when i went through this I like i uh, and before I go into this diatribe, I don't ever want to discount the role of randomness in any of this, right? Like, it's so unbelievably unlikely for any of this to exist, let alone me existing, let alone the company existing, let alone any of this being successful. No one's put me in jail yet. It's a, that. So randomness is like, yes. So acknowledge that, but moving aside from that, it's like each one of the kids, I challenge, like, what is your number one point of leverage? Like, what, what is the intersection of fitness and you that gives you a leverage to walk into a room? What is that room? Or we had a kid who served in the military for like nine years. It's like, dude, that is, that is such a great, you know, useful, valuable intersection of what you know and what you know. Like, you know this biomechanics, you know this fitness, you know this training, you know this rehab. 
and you know this world. Like, you can talk and, you know, he, he'll talk in these terms in a room full of non-military people. Like, we all know what the fuck he's talking about. And we're like, that sounds really cool, but why don't you go to a room where everyone knows those terms and talk about these terms, right? That's your best point of leverage. And look, I guarantee you, if you, you know, wherever your recruiting office was, whatever base in Italy you were in or Hawaii or Korea, whatever contacts you pull on, like that's your best point of leverage. Now you might think that's military, but it's actually, you're gonna be the only fitness guy in that room rather than look at yourself as just another, you know, a soldier in that room or another member of the Air Force or Marines or whatever. And I guarantee you, if you do that and you wanna be back here, that is any, like where you need to end up is on the other side of the nearest leverage that you can, that you can pull or the nearest lever that you can pull. Because everyone's like, oh, I need to get an internship at Iowa. I need to get an internship at Ohio State. It's like, no, you don't. So one guy runs a fat camp in Utah. He was like, all right, well, is, there's a fat camp in L.A.? Yeah, okay. Like, go there. Or, like, go to a private client who goes to one of those things. Like, figure out what your leverage is. Because people, I think, they try and like, you kind of alluded to it. None of them, no one really knows the path. If you went back and reverse engineered what that path was, what people in, inherently did was took the next opportunity that had the greatest amount of leverage. And then when they were in this position, they're now in a place where they can use this experience of their new business or new partnership or new relationship or new friendship or new connection to then leverage to the next thing. As long as you keep your head on your shoulders and don't fuck people over and you move in that direction, you'll end up really far in the place that you want to be. And I think people too, you know, in talking about outcome versus process, right now being outcome oriented is a luxury because we've carved this, you know, sort of circuitous road to get where we're at. But if I look back on that road of what that process was in retrospect, that process was honestly, in some cases, deliberate social engineering and premeditated leverage. I have this. What is, where does this, okay, I work at Apple. That's fucking crazy. How did I get here? I had a good relationship with this person who knew this person who knew this person. I used to have a shaved head right down to the skin. That does not work at Apple in a wellness center. So I saw an opportunity for this job to open up last minute. Then if I was in the right place at the right time, I would get it. Six months before that opportunity may have popped up, I started growing up my hair. Started wearing glasses around the person who would make the decision. Started being a little bit more approachable. And then when the time came, it's like, oh, geez, hey, you know, this watch that's opened up, we're shorthanded. I know you just graduated. Do you want to commit? Cool. LinkedIn profile. Got it. I work at Apple now. It's way easier to work at Stanford when you worked at Apple. Next thing, Stanford. Got to the, okay, cool. So I'm a strength coach at Stanford. Great. Boom. Leverage, next thing. Leverage, next thing. And I just think a lot of people don't, they don't understand the perception of where they are in their industry. And they start to, you know, they write in their little diaries or their mood boards and shit. And they try and go like, oh, I'm going to get here. It's like, look, the only line you draw in your head is from where you are now and into the room where you have the greatest amount of leverage that's gonna move you forward. That's it. And then if you do that with good intentions and provide value, then when you look back, you'll be able to retroactively put together where you, you ended you think up. People discount proximity. So you're talking about taking advantage of leverage points that are close to you, right? Mm. People look for these grand, big opportunities. You're looking at the Hormozis of the guys in the jet and the billionaires and all that stuff, which is great when you're looking on the internet, but when it comes to like actual opportunity, there seems to be so much so close, and yet people discount that because they want the big thing as opposed to the, let's say, small thing first. 
not knowing what that small thing can turn into. Sure. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And I also think people think the world is bigger than it is. I've been around it a bunch of times. We all have. Oh, it's yeah. not that big. Right? Like, yeah. it's amazing to me when I hear people bitch about long flights. <laughs> it's like, you'll do, mar you'll do movie marathons that last longer than it takes me to get around the world. Yeah. Right? Like, you'll watch a fucking, I can't, like that. We, we're not going to talk about the TV and how much I despise TVs. Maybe we will. Go on your Netflix right now and look at your last four or five seasons of whatever show you've watched and tally up whether it's, and I'm not talking to you guys specifically, obviously, but like tally up your Game of Thrones, tally up your uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, tally up your whatever the fuck you watch, tally up all the hours. And I can... Don't bring I, Larry into this. I can guarantee you. Okay, I'm sorry. Thank you. Tally up as many hours of Friends as you watch and then consider jumping off the highest building you have. Tally all of those up, and then I'll tally up all the hours I spent in the air. And I can guarantee you people have spent more time watching TV than I spent traveling. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, 99% of people don't need to get on a flight to do anything. Their lives are very simple. Well, I think, your principle, I think the your conversation principle, we're yes. having is about not having a simple life. Your, your conversation makes a lot of sense when you apply it to this idea that People need all this relaxation time, and they are actually afraid of hard work. They're afraid of applying themselves and taking risks, and there's this general fear of the unknown. There's a lot of people that do want to start something, or they want to have an extra, extra source of income or get their business to the next level. It's, it's very easy to start a business. You can just go online and open an LLC today, right? The process of taking it from one client, gaining a reputation, continuing to scale it, there is not a lot of that that is involved. You don't have a lot of time for that. There's no. a lot of mental energy because I find myself doing this every day. I wake up, you know, five, six in the morning. I'll start thinking about all of this shit and writing notes and plans and, you know, knowing I have to execute all that stuff throughout the week. And it, it does take up an enormous amount of uh, mental energy to, to, to actually think about it and execute on it and, and do it well in a way that's scalable. Yeah, I think people say those things because they don't actually know, right? They think, like... The most common one is actually like, you know, he's broker realtor, Mark Leone. I think people say, oh, I'm going to be a realtor on the side and just make extra money. Where it's just like, you know, outside of like maybe you, you're literally the only person I know who's just like, I'm going to casually do this and maybe I'll get a couple million dollar deals, you know, throughout the year. Well, because it's not my main source of income. No, well, I, I know that. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But people are like, oh, I'm going to be a realtor on the side. And the reality is. You can't do it. It just doesn't fucking. No. You know, like, the majority of people are working fucking 10-plus-hour days, you know, and it takes them years to build this client list and everything that they have going. But it's just not reality. But they, they don't know because they haven't done it, right? Or starting a business. Like, you can name any fucking business, right? You do it on the side, it's probably not going to do well. You know, like, Jordan has, you know, he's got one thing, right? And then there's the little legs that go off of it because opportunities, Right. So if you're in your one thing, no matter what that is, there's opportunities within probably what you're doing that you're mm -hmm. probably not thinking about. But they just go off and say, I, I just need to make extra money. I don't I feel like it's just I don't believe in it. I don't believe in this idea that you can fracture your attention into multiple different things and be successful because I've seen too many people try. And I, I mean, I, I you have you don't have to. My philosophy behind all of this is you go full force toward one thing and if you fail that's great but at least you know that you've tried and you've given it the proper amount of attention that it deserves yeah i mean i think it comes down to environment right like i worked multiple jobs at the same time and it wasn't until i was like kind of forcefully by shitty luck and me being an idiot and shit you know then maybe part of that bad luck was that i was just born an idiot 
But things didn't start to, the tides didn't start to change until all of my resources were available for one thing. Now, the unfortunate part of that was I was living in my car and I had nowhere to live and I had, I didn't have the opportunity to do anything but this one thing. People palliate themselves with the, with the veneer of hard work across these different projects. They waste so much time switching time in between. They, may, they waste so much time switching tasks in between these two things. It wasn't until I had one thing to focus on that the one thing I focused on was doing really well or started the process of doing well. And look, if it takes, because I'm a huge believer of the change in environment. That's why I travel so much. And I'm sure that's why you travel so much. And I'm sure that's why you travel so much. Whether it's consciously or subconsciously, like the environment, the inputs dictate the outputs, right? So if like, you know, there wasn't, I thought I knew urgency until I had to do math about, I literally used to have to do this. of like, okay, my car is parked here. I need to get gas for my forerunner if I go to the grocery store, but I only have X number of dollars. I want to not be small, so what's going to be the coefficient of the most amount of calories burned? Because if I go with the money I have to the grocery store by foot, and I walk there and back, I'm going to have to take two trips. But it's a long walk with a lot of groceries. But if I drive, I won't be able to take as many, uh, I won't be able to buy as many groceries because I have to pay for gas. But I won't have to walk with the food that I purchase. Will I ultimately be at a calorie surplus or a calorie deficit? Like that's like a pretty low moment that sticks out. That's a, that, there's a term for people like this. <laughs> Insane. Yeah, a little touch, <laughs> a little touch a little of spectrum. <laughs> yeah, a little but, spectrum there. So, but at the end of the day, it's like, well, I mean, I thought I knew what urgency was before. Like I went to undergrad, I went to grad school, I worked at these large institutions. But it wasn't until then that I was like, oh, okay, like I get it. Now, look, maybe it takes you putting yourself in a bad position, right? I heard on this podcast, I think it was like a Chris Williamson podcast about like the beta region paradox, which is like, I think where a lot of people live in this comfortably numb state of your situation would be better off if it was worse. Because I never was really forced into necessary action until my situation was much, 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 much worse. Right. And maybe that's hard, but it's like now knowing that I try to not lead as comfortable a life as I could. Right. Because I got so much out of that. Now, mind you, like, you know, I have a place to live somewhere. If all if all goes to shit, like I can go back to Toronto. I have a condo. I can stay there. It's fine. But I do like to be on the razor's edge of like, OK, if I can put myself in environments where I'm, and look, redlining might have a negative connotation, but after the week I just had, I'll use the word redlining. Where I'm redlining it, that's where you're gonna find another gear. No one finds seventh gear from first, right? You need to be able to put yourself in these situations. And the thing is when you learn to start to really like drop the hammer and throttle up and do more and more and more, you figure out ways and systems and, and strategies to recognize like the real warning signs on the dashboard, but you also recognize ways how to be more conservative with your energy, right? More conservative with your time. You become efficient doing this. Things. You become more efficient, yeah. And it's and I think that's where a lot of these analogies drop off is like, you know, we're we're wired to adapt. So that when I feel like I'm redlining, my first instinct is to do more because it's gonna force me to adapt. Was there was there a pivot point so far with script where you went from maybe that that thinking to like fuck this is this might actually work type of thing was like a moment or like something where it kind of just happened or is it just just the slow you know the slow mm. eight-year-old i kind of have this this mantra of nothing's ever as bad as i think it's going to be and nothing's ever as good as i think it's going to be right and so like 
you know, COVID hit. Luckily, we were online far before that. And we weren't really sure what that meant for the state of the business. Now, we did a lot of in-person education at the time, to which we had to refund pretty much overnight. March 14, 2020, I was in the air to Australia. And by the time I landed, I probably had 20, 30 emails of different uh, venues canceling or different people asking for their money back because we were every weekend on the road. Um, but no, I, I think it's been fairly steady. Again, business, the leverage point, right? Like there are opportunities. Like we just finished this week here and this is our first level three course. That was three and a half years in the making, right? And so, you know, a, a bit of patience, keeping your eyes open. But I, I wouldn't say there's been one massive, infl I think the massive inflection points have come at, from perspective and come from like reflecting on the business and like learning you know, from you guys, the businesses that you get into, um, the businesses that I've been, you know, proxy to, um, you know, this, I've seen organizations much larger than what I've been a part of as you, the same have, have failed and, and trying to dissect like, oh, okay. So, so I would say the, the big inflection points haven't come from events or opportunities, but it's kind of just come from like paying attention. And sometimes I think our biggest, our biggest opportunities have been avoiding massive pitfalls, right? Like mm -hmm. kind of playing into what you were just talking about. It's like one of our biggest opportunities I think is, is understanding the downfalls of other businesses and avoiding them because it's there's a siren. Open. Yeah. There's a siren song to when everything's going right. right? You have this Midas touch and everything you do just seems to like, disproportionately outperform competitors in your space and you start to get like a bit of you know uh, pride or hubris or something that you can do everything and it's like you know watching companies do that being a part of organizations that have tried to do that where you know we've we've definitely had this reduced essence this sort of like tyson in the bath towel mentality of like look we don't we, we just want to focus on the things that we're good at and those happen to be the things that make us the most amount of money all of the externalities, you know, in our in our world, like uh, apparel or uh, meetups or whatever it is, it's like that's not what we do, right? We're not a fucking social club, right? This is we we specialize in this, and we, sometimes we've gotten pulled away from it, and we spread ourselves too thin, and the core product, our core primary business suffers. So, like you know, we have opportunities in the software space that we've tabled. We've had investors come around with really uh, in, like. Um, enticing deals that we've shunned aside. And so I think the biggest inflection point to the business was doing less, or at least not doing less, but, you know. Being more focused. Being more focused, heeding the warning signs, paying attention. Like, you know, for, for me, like I, like I said, like when I'm redlining, I want to do more, right? I, I want my calendar to be full because there's going to be a day like where no one calls. And I've, you know, I've said that more than a few times. But I think knowing when, and I don't say knowing when to throttle back, but knowing when to say no, when you've got to a place by saying yes for so long, that's been the biggest thing, uh, the uptick for us. Have you had something similar lifting-wise, like what we were talking about, just that pivot point where like, oh, fuck, like, I'm pretty good at this. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess over my strength career, it was, uh, I was learning that I could not consistently train the way that I started to. I switched coaches probably two or three years before I was my strongest. Uh, learned a new way to train. Learned a new way to kind of approach that whole thing uh, in the gym. You know, I, I learned recovery techniques. You know, I mean, I was very focused on it outside. I spent my whole day working. You know, I'd go to the gym for four or five days a week, train for three hours a session. 
Uh, you know, I would go recover at the bathhouse probably two or three days a week at, at the peak of when that was possible. And then, I know, RIP. RIP. Uh, but I realized for me, doing less was more, being more focused, uh, taught me a lot about my approach to work also. I learned uh, it, it was very important to kind of have a clarity and focus about what I was doing, the end goal. And that became even more apparent this year for other reasons. But, you know, the my time in the gym, I, that was such, such a crucial thing for me. You know, I learned so much. I met so many people that were able to kind of instruct me. And I learned how to shut up and listen to other people that were better than me. You know, I've always watched others and see how oh, that guy got injured doing this and he was overtraining. And, you know, I knew that if I could go in and do certain things, uh, my body would keep up. You know, obviously I have a, a rare genetic predisposition toward being big and strong. So there's that, you know, you always got the lead with that. Like you're, people, or, you know, I get, I get those same conversations you guys get. You know, how much you bench, how strong are you? And I just tell them flat out 900 pounds. You know, okay, so they don't care about 881, but they will understand what a 900-pound X, Y, or Z is. And I say, yeah, I mean, there's, I'm going to give you two, two reasons. You're not going to like, or three reasons. You're not going to like the first two, but the last one you'll probably resonate with. Uh, the first two are genetics and extracurricular activities. Uh, <laughs> and it kind of shocks people. And then the last one is, you know, I trained for you know, now 17 years, never got injured. You know, just kept going, kept pushing, and... I've always applied that to, to work as well. Um, you know, there's, there's a sense of urgency every time you're doing it with this long-term perspective in mind. So it's, I kind of I think I have a slightly different outlook on it than you do. I don't know if the out, cause I don't know what the outcome is for me. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe there's a dollar amount per year, but after, you know, even now, you know, like my lifestyle probably won't change too significantly. Maybe I'll get another schnauzer. <laughs> I think I operate off a tremendous amount of spite. Probably <laughs> one of the most angry business operators in the world. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I feed off of attrition. I feed off of people dying while I'm still on my feet. Like I feed off of other businesses failing because they aren't willing to do what it takes to stay alive. Big hater. Well, no, it's just because that's the only, that's if I had a genetic predisposition, it's that. Spite. I'll shovel more shit. I will crawl further through the Shawshank Tunnel than anyone like that's where I'm competitive is like, and that feeds into the neuroses. It feeds into like the entire lifestyle. It feeds into like the, Hey, let's, how much further can this thing go? Like how many more places can I go? Like how many, how much more, every time someone's like, man, I don't know how you travel so much. I'm like, yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. Like, is your credit card different than mine? Does your bank work different than mine? Does your airlines work different than the airlines I do? No, no. What, what's working different? Your, your brain. Your brain is different. Like, you like your comfort. You like your fucking go watch your show with your girl or whatever. But don't fucking, when, when we come for the bag in five years, like, don't be wondering why that though I'm in this position. Like, I have such a sadistic, sick mind. Like, when I'm up at four in the morning, I need to be up at four to be the worst version of myself for four hours before the rest of the world wakes up. So you wake up spiteful. I don't even set an alarm. He's just mad. Just <laughs> no. He's not even a dad that he knows about. Yeah. He just wakes up mad at the world. No, it's, but it's, 
It's now, it's yeah, now. Who closed today? But, but now. Uh, yeah. You piece of shit. It's like his power level closed. Like every time a business closed, Jordan absorbs their power level. But it's. You're like the Godzilla of the power, like the power of the strength and conditioning it's just and education. A, world. Like, no, at the end of the day, like what gets me up is that I really enjoy it and I have an opportunity that I well, never thought on, I'd have. Don't backtrack no, no, over no, that. No, no, look, that monologue was. No, epic. these two things can coexist. Like Supervillain of. What are you, a, bi uh, a bipolar hater? A yeah, probably. You, you, you wake up angry not? and then, man, I'm so why grateful for this Why not throw the bipolarity <laughs> with the rest of the shit I got going on? <laughs> no, but like, it's, I just don't think people have invested in it because I hate this idea of, you know, like, I don't, I'm not good at business per se. Now I've experienced, I've gone through a lot. I've dealt with a lot of lawyers and accountants and tax strategists and buyouts and all of this shit. Like, I've, and I've had bad business deals and I've had bad business partners. I have good business partners, like and I started businesses, and I've I assimilated businesses, and I've done a lot for someone who has zero business formal training. But at the end of the day, it's like, well, I, I hate the idea of being being beat by someone that has a strong business acumen without the passion for the technical underpinning of the business I'm in. Right? So I've been approached to, for startups and bullshit and advising and equity points and all this stuff. But if I don't care about like the core product, if that's not aligned with like the thing I'm passionate about, I. I can't be a part of it. I mean, my brain just will not allow me to do it. Right. So for me, it's like, I think that there's a sanctity to what we do, the opportunity we have, whether it's working with athletes or whether it's just training people in general. Like I think there's, there's a, there's a, there's a sanctity to that. There's a purity to that. It should be left untouched. So when I see business vultures coming into the space that might have better strategies, it might have a more formal understanding of how the world of business works, but doesn't understand that core piece that's where like the vindictive side comes through. And I just like, w the only way I can prove to myself that that is the thing that I care about the most is through how I act. It'd be no different than in your relationship, right? If you're like, oh, okay, I love you. And then you just like fucked off for months on end and never called the person. It's like, yeah, but I said like, I love you before I left two months ago. It's like, well, no, no, it's like a daily process, right? So for me, it's like, when I get up and I'm like doing some reading or I'm doing some writing or you know even something as simple as like managing logistics of a trip around that core thing, I'm competing for the the sanctity of the thing that I really enjoy doing, like the core essence of our product, because I think I don't see anyone else who've dedicated as much of their own time and money into that, and they've dedicated into like, well, I hired this like seven figure masterclass business mentor guy. It's like you don't have an undergrad degree. Right? Like, you don't know everything. Like, you can go on Wikipedia and know everything about the body. Like, you haven't even done that yet. You can watch a bunch of videos and learn some shit. So you're just skipping the queue. So that's my, that's the, that's the core of it. Like, that's the singularity to the operation. And then at the, there's just this vindictive fucking spiteful I think, I think shit storm. The Reader's Digest version of what, you know, what I know. I mean, obviously, I know a lot more about you than just this monologue. But people, you give a shit. And you care that you give a shit. You don't like that other people don't give a shit. That's catalyst. I, I don't like that other people don't give a shit. Let's, this, is, this is a core principle for any, anybody in the business world or lifting weights or fucking in a relationship. The, the, the world of businesses, I, and I hate this idea that it's a walled garden, that, that there's some ivory tower blocking this space that we all live in and that there is some inaccessibility. So much of it comes down to giving a shit giving a shit about your product, about your customer, about the experience they have, about the knowledge you have, and about their ability to rely on you. It's all part and parcel of the same deal. You know, James Mack, 
The one thing I always remember that he says is you know, how you do one thing is how you do everything. He's insane. Oh. So we actually have that. God, peanut you just butter discredited steak, him. But we actually have that tattooed on our ribs. Not the steak peanut butter, but how you do one thing is how you do everything. Yeah, we, we, we'll talk about that again one day. They don't get good steak in South Africa. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I think that's what I'm talking it up to. He was just masking yeah. it, but it was yeah. a great line. And ever since I, you know, we had that time together when he was living in Miami, I've always, it always sticks with me. I, I think about that because I think mm -hmm. about... I, whenever we have these conversations, and I know today's not focused on me or anything, but the idea that lifting is different than business, and business is different than your personal relationship, and that's different than your, your relationship with your parents and your family. And it's like, to me, if you don't have, if, you, if, you're, if you're Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and you care a whole lot about lifting weights, and you happen to be a business owner, and you don't put the same amount of passion and effort into that, you don't put the same amount of passion and effort into your relationship, your wife or your partner, whatever it is, those things are doomed to fail. Not recognizing that you don't give a shit is a huge problem. Yeah, I think like a big, a big portion of actually what I did in Ukraine is like this human evaluation, you know, and the same thing like applied to business for me too, and that's kind of like where that started from. And I would say this to the manager at the gym, you know, RIP ABC. Um, but it applies to relationships uh, with significant others and friends as well. Mm -hmm. And I would always say to the guy at the gym, I was like, imagine... Um, you want a gym to go to, right? You've checked out a couple gyms. You come to our gym. You walk in, um, and there's just, like, some dirt on the mat or whatever, right? It's a gym. Not a big deal, right? You go into the bathroom. It's just out of toilet paper, whatever. You know, not a big deal. This stuff happens. Just grab another one. Go into the gym. You go to bench. Every bench has weights on it with nobody around. It's like, all right, like, this is a gym. This kind of stuff happens. You know, you do your workout. Everything's fine. Uh, you go, you want to sign up, there's nobody at the front desk, uh, you got to like call a number, the guy shows up in a couple minutes because he's doing something else, right? You go home and you think to yourself, uh, you know, someone asks you like, oh, how, how was it? And you're like, oh, it, was, it was all right, like, wasn't good, wasn't bad, it was, it was like an all right experience. But what made that just an all right experience is all these little things you might not notice, right? but yeah. you notice and, and it's inside and the same thing happens with relationships, right? Like if... If you were to walk home and your wife, girlfriend, or whatever, like, doesn't say anything to you as you walk by, it's like, okay, whatever, like, not a big deal. Like, you go inside and let's say, let's say they're, they're a bed maker. The bed's not made, right? Oh, all right, whatever. You know, like, you go, you go cook some food or whatever, like, usually there's food there. Now there's not food there. It's like another, oh, you know, whatever. Like, this, this might happen, maybe it's a busy day. And then you see her and you're like, is everything okay, right? That's where that leads to that sort of situation yeah. and a lot of people are like wow john that's really fucking insane of you to think those things but it's these small it's these small interactions insane. right it's yeah. these small interactions that eventually lead up and it's the same thing if let's say they have a pre-script interaction or your company interaction where it's like hey marcus uh i texted you i called you and then i emailed you over the course of a week and you never got back to me or hey i tried to sign up at pre-script and the fucking the website wasn't working and then i contacted somebody and then they never returned my call uh, it's like, well, it's not that it's a bad company. It's not that it's a bad person. It's friction. It's just, it's, it creates friction. Right. And it, these small steps eventually just lead to kind of a shoulder shrug of an interaction when all it took was the small things that you guys talked about. Which I think it's interesting because I would say the two traits that you guys have, because I sat in that chair 10 minutes ago or an hour ago, however long it's been, and got, I literally said, you're the the two people I complain the most to because you're the two people I never have to complain about in my entire life. Sorry to anyone who else I interact with. 
if you're not if you're I, not one of these two I'm people up. in front of me, I complain about you when I'm not around you. <laughs> but to your point, and I noticed this with you, I would say you're two of the most. Now, I don't mean like Nora Jones sensitivity. I mean it the way like a radar is sensitive, like in the way you just described. Because like, what you just described was sensitivity, right? Because if you're in an active war zone, you need to figure out the anomalies really quickly, yeah. right? So like I would say you two are the most sensitive people to that. Like whether it's body, lang body language that I'm unaware of, like and I try to be as self-aware as possible, that's what you two, I think, excel above all else. And that's what I try and like instill in people is like, you know, you have to, you have to, um, you know, landscape your environment in your head, whatever that is, like whether it's the business. For me, it's like now it's rooms, it's, you know, similar in, in, in practice, but obviously different in application of like, if I'm in a room, I need to know what each one of these people's likely individual normal is. Now, with in this case of the last week, I kind of know these guys after teaching them for you know almost a year before getting in. So, but I need to make lookalikes of when a player walks in. All right, he's going with the braids. What are all the guys I know with the braids? How do they act? What's the baseline? How is this guy next to that baseline? Okay, this guy's six five. This guy's an O line. This guy's a safety. This guy's a corner. So, like, I have. You know, I make, I'm profiling people 24-7 as far as their interaction. And I could only imagine, like, you know, I kind of want to dig more into that because that's what I think makes both of you guys excel at everything that you guys do is your ability to be really sensitive to change. Yeah. Right? And ours, <laughs> thank you. I, I, his is much different than mine. I mean, mine's so much, like, uh, today's not about me, but what I do for work is so much in the banking and mortgage real estate space. It's, it's very formal. So and a lot of their, they, they are people that don't want to have to interact with me or my company. And if they do, w they don't want it to be painful, right? Uh, so reducing friction. And this is what we're talking about, friendships, relationships, you know, your spouse, the, the bed making analogy was really good. Uh, signing up for a course, you know, if somebody doesn't give them some attention, you know, they're going to go to your competitor. If somebody doesn't answer an email from my office, they're going to go to a competitor. And it's so much about knowing the audience and being attentive to it, because no matter who you are, that's so key. And you know, probably not as important, because you reading the room is probably a life-saving endeavor, and being skilled at doing so could be the difference between some of your, your colleagues coming back alive or, well, or not. I mean, partly that, but honestly, uh, it's going to sound kind of shitty. It's getting to people to do what you want them to do. When did you realize you were good at that? Um, I don't actually. I like when I was there. I knew I was good at it because I was just successful at it. But it's one of those things that I've always been perceptive to the people around me and to the relationships that I have, and that's why I have the relationships I do. Because not once since I've known you or him, we've ever. I don't think had any friction about anything ever. Uh, no, nah, he tried he tried to sneak away and pay the bill. I'm like, oh fuck you, piece of shit, piece yeah. of shit. You know, and th those are I'll never stop. mostly the relationships that are in the closest circle of mine. I don't think I've ever had any friction. I I've got my friend Kyle has been my best friend since I was literally five years old. So for over thirty years, oh we've never gotten into a single argument. You know, because it's a mutual respect type of thing, and you have to understand that because some people it's not really high on their priority list, which is kind of crazy. Other people respect is is the highest. You know, so when I'm over there and evaluating people, you, you kind of read into what motivates people and what people love, they love talking about themselves. 
So you start the conversations talking about them and let them talk about themselves. Well, they're going to think you're a good listener initially, and they're going to like that. And then they want you to know about them. They want to prove themselves to you. So you're already in a position of power at that point because they're trying to tell you what they know. And you can get what you, they know out of them without having to ask, you know? And it's a, kind of an easy thing to do. And it, that translates to so many different business interactions. And, the, like, the number one thing... Um, asking questions. Well, a- asking questions, yeah. yeah, but being truly inquisitive on as to well, giving what a shit, people yeah. are doing. But right. once you start digging into that, then you can get to see where their mind is at, what they're after, what they're getting out of it. Because not everyone has the same thing. You might think everyone's on the same thing. And being a, being a business owner and a leader, both of you, not everyone has the same goal in mind, right? It could be, it could be hanging on to you for a leap to something. Jordan talked about that before. And it happens in business. It could be hanging on to you for a leap into something else. And in the military, it's a common thing, especially there. It could be hanging on to this situation because they want something better, or they want, who, who fucking knows? They want to go somewhere else where they might not die. And with that, uh, when we talk about, and another thing with that was uh, power structure. So there's mm. like an informal power structure, which I think a lot of people don't think about. It's very fucking real, though. The informal power structure over there is, let's say we all worked at the same company. There's another two or three of us or whatever. Um, well, not, not me. Let's say you guys and a bunch of other guys, right? Uh, let's say you're the CEO, you know, Jordan's the lowest level guy, right? So we all get to talking or whatever, talk individually, and there's a whole bunch of middle management. So I'm going to ask Jordan, like, oh, uh, you know, who, who do you guys go to for weapons here? You know, like, like what do you guys do? And like, who, where do you guys live? Or who, who do you go for, for food or answers or whatever? And he's going to give me that name of that person, right? Or people. You know, I go to you at the top. I ask the same question. Could be the same, could be different. Go to the middle management people. I say, hey, who do I go to for these things? And they say, oh, this, this guy will take care of you. This guy will take care of you. You start to develop the pattern, and it might not be you. They're gonna, you would think that in a company or in this situation, like a mm-hmm. commander, oh, the commander has all the answers. He has all the influence. In an informal power structure, it could lead completely to somebody else. It could mm-hmm. be somebody in the middle where it's like, this guy in the middle is the one who calls the shots. This guy in the middle is this guy up here who's the commander goes to him and asks, like, hey, what's going on? Like, what do we need? This, 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 and that. He wants to keep his status. So he goes to the most well-informed person. So this person in the middle holds the most power. And Mm -hmm. it's like this in a lot of companies and a lot of different places that people just don't know about. But if you can find this person, you now don't have to go to the CEO, person at the top, whatever the case is. You find the person with this informal power. They have influence over that. You find these influential people, like I said, in different personal relationships, business relationships, any relationship you want, and you can find what you need and get what you need without just having to fucking text, call, or email the guy at the top who probably won't give you the time of day. And I think a lot of people do that. Uh, you know, in the fitness industry, it's probably a very common thing where it's just like, you know, not not to say like blow my own self up, right? But if there's somebody in fitness, and I've been in it long enough, but I'm kind of like a, a relevant person now, but I probably know who they are and I can text them. You know what I mean? But you probably don't know who I am. You would know who Jordan is, right? And same thing. He's got, he's got a fucking, you know, boomer, got a Rolodex, basically, of people across, you know, across the world. And it's the same with you, where it's just like, a, you wouldn't imagine the guy just doing real estate work all day has access to 
Thor's coach. You know what I mean? But you would never know. So anyway, going back, so there's that informal power structure, and I'm sure that's applied to a million different things, but that's a, that was a big influence on kind of a, a mindset change mm-hmm. as to dealing with people. Does now like I, it would almost be hard for you to parse out, but because when did you join the military? How old were you? Uh, I was twenty-one when I first joined. Okay, so there's there's no way that you can possibly parse out what you, what like if we were to A B test a John that goes to the military at twenty-one versus doesn't. Yeah. How much of because like I was telling someone the other day about a story you told me after this issue, this thing I ran into in in the Middle East, and I called you and you told me a story from when you were there. And I was like, wow, okay, perspective. When you talk about business and leadership and you talk about the human evaluation side, how much does the gravity of what's at stake in the landscape in which you learned this at least shape the sensitivity to your ability to read people? Or um, what would be another comparison? Basically, the fact that you had to learn this in war how much more rapidly do you think you learned it and how much more acute did you think you became to the, the, the differences in tone, pitch, posture, distance, everything you can be sensitive to? How much do you think that impacted how well you became at there, how well you established the sensitivity? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, there's a big back and forth of it because the other side of that is just like, if it doesn't matter, it's just like, yeah, don't, don't be a bitch. Let's just go fucking do it. You get none of the input. You don't think about anything else that you heard, saw, whatever. You just got to go do it because you don't have an option. But I, I didn't operate that way. So I always, I got as much information as possible. And I think that kind of, I mean, it did it did shape for better and worse because now it's every interaction, you know. And you start to think about things that maybe didn't matter or maybe shouldn't matter, you know. And you have to, you have to kind of parse out, like, what matters and what doesn't? What's real? What isn't real? What am I putting together that shouldn't be put together? And that's part of this whole fucking thing or whatever with human evaluation because somebody could literally, like, the hardest people are stupid fucking people, to be honest, because they don't know what they're doing or thinking and they don't know why they're doing it, you know? So trying to figure that out and, you know, going over there, a lot of, a lot of the commanders that I met were there because of who they knew, not because of their skill set. And it was a lot of, proving themselves to me right and vice kind of vice versa like I had to prove that like hey I, like I belong in this room type of thing and there's certain things that you do in a certain way you carry yourself and over there being big is a, is a positive like no if you're twink sized nobody wants to listen to you I'm already telling you <laughs> you know so so being uh, a burly boy will help you out a little bit they but, call that a bear John yeah ah, okay. we're making right. comparisons here uh, yeah yeah okay. use proper bear, terminology yeah, Miami man I'm not you know, getting piggyback rides or anything like that in Miami Beach for money. But. <laughs> We're all, it can't be that big. Yeah. It's only a couple <clears> hundred <throat> bucks. Okay. Easiest hundred bucks you ever made. <laughs> yeah, but it, it is. Like, uh, you know, I guess the... It, you don't think about it as like, you know, like a life and death situation type of thing. Um, you know, you know the consequence of what could happen. And it's unfortunate, like a little sidebar... Going out and doing these things, and you know, I've had a bunch of friends that have died. Of this. People I work with every day for six months, you know, that have died. And whenever it happens, nobody thinks it's their day. It's the same thing probably in, in regular life or when a fucking business implodes or something crazy happens. You know, you lose your mom, your dad, whatever. Like, 
you never think it's going to be you that has to deal with it. And that's something that had another big just mind shift change as well with that, where it's just like, you know, life happens with or without you. You know what I mean? And with these people going out and doing the things, like, oh, you know, I'll see you when I get back, blah, blah, blah. Well, they, you know, they don't come back type of thing. Um, and these are same, the same people with, like, hope streams and stuff like that. But unfortunately, a lot of these people put themselves into situations because it, it wasn't thought through what they were doing. And unfortunately, and then over there, it's very macho. The culture is very macho. And that's something that you have to understand. Um, and it's like, well, if you don't go do this, you're gay. That's pretty much what they would say to you. You know? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, man, that sounds like eighth grade out. recess. Well, no, like, I, I would get into Driving into the country in the first week of April of 2022 when the war is still going on and everything's everywhere, and I put my seatbelt on in the car. I probably told you this guy this before. I, I put my seatbelt on the car. He's like, bro, no, 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 no. Uh, they'll think you're gay if you wear your seatbelt. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> so I didn't wear a seatbelt the whole time I was there because this guy's like, oh, you can't do that if the cops see you. I would, like, go into it. we go into a restaurant or a store and say, hey, how you doing? Just normal shit. And then, bro, what are you doing? They're going to think you're gay. I'm like, Jesus Christ. What? <laughs> like, all right, not being nice in restaurants. Thing, you know, Very Russian. Fucking, yeah, I guess that's well, fucking... Well, <laughs> pretty crazy. Okay. I thought they were going to say Okay. Yeah, yeah Ukrainian. I see where you land. Go, go, go back to the, the human evaluation yeah, side. okay. Sorry. No, sorry. No. sorry. A little, a little you, side what, if, if you could... <laughs> This bear, oh, this Marcus bear over here. The bomb. There's a lot of you people over there, actually. <laughs> you people. Well, apparently they're trying to denazify the place, and uh, I don't know how well they're doing. You were talking about human evaluation. One thing that yeah, I yeah. Uh, that stuck out to me was, you know, what what's the red flag for you if you're looking for people and trying to evaluate them as somebody who's going to be a liability versus an asset? When you're doing those kind of base level interactions, asking them questions letting them open up, talk about themselves, letting you into their head a little bit, motivations and so forth. What, what's the red flag? Is uh, there one? I mean, red flags, it's kind of like influencer red flags to me. If you're trying to sell me on something and it's you have that in your normal conversations with people, you can tell that they're trying to sell you that they are this person, they are this type of person. If you're too over the top with it, that's the red flag for me. You know what I mean? It's like if a product's in your face and you're like, this, uh, this is like bang, basically. This is going to cure you from being retarded. You know? <laughs> it's like, all right. What was the claim? The claim was not, is the super creatine or something. Super creatine. Right, but he claimed. Yeah, on our super creatine. He, oh, he claimed that it was Alzheimer's. Uh, it, would, it would prevent you from. <laughs> from <laughs> uh, <laughs> he got in a lot of trouble. I, I don't know. I think. Are the red, are the red flags? You those are because this is a broad question. But so yeah, but broad question. Sure, applied uh, from. I just think he's uh, way more sensitive than that in the sense of like yeah. it surely comes down to instinct. Like this guy's probably a good lie detector, some sort of galvanic know, skin so response. Yeah, like, yeah. So someone trying to sell you a sham. Wow, but wait, there's more. Like yeah, yeah any fucking well, loser can yeah, pick yeah. up on that. They're trying to like sell you a product. They're trying to sell you on themselves. They're trying to sell you on maybe an idea or a belief or their way of doing it, right? Because like I said, people love talking about themselves. So right. If you let them talk about themselves, they're going to give you everything that you need to know if you ask the right questions, right? So if we want to talk about, um, if you want to talk about planning for a mission, you know, and... Well, it doesn't get more high stakes. Well, right. It doesn't get more high stakes than that. You talk about planning for a mission, mm -hmm. though, and they're trying to sell you on this, this is the way to do it. 
There is no other way. Overconfidence? In their, in their in, method. In, 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 well, in their method, but it's not, it's, it's not really back. I think about, you know, when Jordan talked about having to explain, like, the adjustment, right? When, and you kind of have that moment where, like, what the, I mean, really, what the fuck is the adjustment? Then you got to answer an actual smart person as to what exactly am I doing. It's kind of the same thing, mm-hmm. you know, that I get in, in the mission planning where it's like, okay, um, well, why do you want it to do that way? I could agree with the way he's doing it, but I want to know why he's doing it that way. Or I want to know why he wants to do it a different way type of thing. And I need, I need the answers to that. But that all stems from, you know, usually I'll ask these questions if I'm, I feel like I'm being sold something or the details aren't hashed out because you do need all the details on everything. Because right. a lot of the time, I mean, the majority of the time, to be honest, uh, we get a phone call, and one specifically, get a phone call at 11 o'clock at night. It's like, hey, we're going to go do a village assault. Uh, we need you guys here at 2 a.m. So we're looking at our clocks. We're like, all right, well, I guess we'll sleep for an hour. We've been up since 6 already. We show up to, uh, they're like, there's going to be 200 guys. Uh, there's going to be 80 tanks. There's 1,000 Russians. And, of course, we're all just like, all right, yeah, we'll go do it, which 5 to 1 is already insane. So we go up there. We get to the staging area, and they're like, oh, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. And we're like, well, what's going on? Like, oh, we'll tell you on the front lines. We just go straight to the trenches on the front, you know, and we get there, and we're like, all right, we got to infill to the village of Salt and do this and that. We get on, uh, we're just Toyota Hiluxes, just, you know, no, no armor cars or anything, and all the trucks are full, and there's or a truck bed full of rockets, and there's nowhere to fucking sit, so I'm just like, oh, I'm just going to sit on top of the rockets in the back of a truck. And just hope nothing bad happens. Seems know? safe. Yeah. Oh my so, god. So we're driving. We're driving on the infill to this village assault, and uh, <laughs> I see white fo- white phosphorus is coming down from the ground. Technically illegal. In yeah, I was about to say. Yeah. So we see that we see oh that coming god. in, and with white phosphorus, it, it goes through everything that it touches. So sitting on the rockets. You were sitting on the rockets. White phosphorus. White, yep. white phosphorus coming yes. down. Yes. Com- if it hits your skin, you you have to carve it out with a knife. Because it'll just go all the way through you. So you have to carve it out with your knife. So we see that coming in. Uh, we're going what? around. It's, it's, drop, it's not dropping on us, but we, it's on our objective, like where we're trying to go. We're driving in. The first car That's hits terrifying, an, the first John. The first car hits an anti-tank mine. The man in it is so entangled in the metal that we can't get him out. He's dead, clearly. But we still like try to get him out. Can't. So we're like, uh, all right, we're not going to take this route. We fucking turn around and go back to where we're doing. We sit here for entirely too long, just uh, in this trench line, missing. There's part of the guys are in the village assault, and we're having to like hear them on the radio, like, "Hey, we think we're all gonna fucking die," basically. And we're trying to get over there, you know, go another car hits a fucking anti-tank mine, and we're like, "Oh fuck!" Now we got casualties lined up. They. Uh, the Russians were so fucking in- intense with like their firepower, like they had helicopters, jets, artillery, mortars, anything you could name it that they, they were getting dumped on. Once they were done with that, they shifted their focus to us, so we start getting all of that coming in, and eventually we're like, uh, they, they were trying to go rescue these guys, and I was like, hey, um, if you guys go and get fucking hurt, I have to go get you, my friends. I was like, I have to go get you. Um, so I was like, let me figure something out. So me and one other guy, we drove over, talked to the commander who did not give a shit about his people. He's just like, ah, they're, they're dying. You know, I was like, all right, or, uh, I, like, we need a fucking tank. Oh, 
when I said there was 200 guys and fucking 40 tanks, we showed up, there's 75 guys and four tanks. Um, Carry the one. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah the math was awful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you crazy, so, Canadian and so probably gay math. Through my translator, I had to yell at this commander to get us a tank to go pick up his own guys and extract them out from the casualty collection point that was already set up that had, uh, there's already anti-tank mine had already blown a car before that, and there's anti-personnel mines that were dropped uh, from artillery all over the place, which these are the ones, another one not supposed to be used in war, they're supposed to be on timers, and they explode after 24 hours, 36 hours, or whatever. These are the type where uh, malfunction, every single one of them malfunction, but there are these little like black butterflies, and if you hit it, you're probably just going to lose your foot or lose your leg or something like that, all over the place. So anyway, tank guy goes, they get his guy, uh, we're still sitting there, and I'm like, what the fuck are we doing here? And I, I wasn't in a position, uh, I wasn't in a leadership position at this time. This was pretty early on. Um, but I'm still like, hey, what the fuck are we doing here anymore? You know, and they're like, um, well, we're just, we want to make sure they're taken care of. And then the Russians set our trench line on fire. All the trees is on fire. And it's just starting to come towards us. And eventually it's like, all right, yeah, uh, now time to leave. So long story that should have been much shorter. That is what no planning looks like. And that's how a lot of people end up dying. We ended up meeting someone out of uh, one of the block posts, like the security post from driving. He was like, oh, I was in that assault. And uh, he shows us where on his rifle he was shot. He's like, oh, I got shot twice in the chest, one in a rifle. And uh, one went through, like, the side of his shirt. So he got shot four times. None actually hit him, you know, on that thing. Uh, yeah, so that was, that was a good time. So do you think that the commander of whoever planned that was... Yeah, didn't give a shit, and they think they think they think they know what they're doing, but they can't explain a single reason why. It's just they can't say no, and that's so, how a lot of people have died. It sounds like a lack of criticality on on the part of somebody who should be asking difficult questions. There should there should be a system. Well, yeah, but also with that too, a lot of Westerners, if they're over there now, maybe they haven't experienced it yet, but they're very expendable. It's just like these are not us these guys can go do this stuff. And they'll send a lot of American, British people from wherever else. If you're not from there, you, you'll probably get sent out to go do some shitty stuff. And it'll be for no reason. It'll be for very little reason. There won't be any support type of thing. So you have to know, you have to know who you can talk to about certain things. And this is part of the thing. You don't know until you go do something with somebody. So the evaluation part is very fucking critical on, I need to know that this person will actually have my back in bad situations instead of doing it the hard way you know and say oh this commander this commander this, we did one with this guy he left us to die we did one with this guy we got no support you know it's you don't know that's where the valuation really comes in and why it mattered and like i said it carries over now to almost any uh interaction in that like i said that informal power structure i continually but i think of the group of 70 that were there you had to have been the anomaly. Because I think most people would rather march to death by the hands of someone else who's willing to make the or pay the consequences. Well, yeah, there, there was plenty of people who were like that. Um, Westerners, Americans, and British guys. Some have been in combat, some not. A lot of the guys who hadn't been in combat, they, they were very gung-ho about everything, right? But on the inverse of that, it's they haven't had to experience their friends dying in their arms, watching them take their last breath. They haven't had to experience, you know, having to call someone's daughter, call someone's wife and say, hey, so-and-so isn't coming home anymore. Like, he just died in battle. 
they haven't had to make those phone calls. So that's why it's like, yeah, I'll go do this. Or uh, I'll go with these guys. Or yeah, we should go do this. Um, I think when you think about it like that, and there is a part of war where you have to put emotions to the side. Like I, I have two kids, you know, and I, I still went and did what I did. And there's a big portion of that in my mind. But I take that into account, but I also take into other people's lives into account as well and value it because a lot of people don't value their own lives. There are certain situations where things have to be done where it's like, this is going to suck and you could die. Um, there are situations, which I preferred, which is like, hey, uh, you could very well die. We planned this the best we could, and this is what we need to do. And it's like, all right, I feel a little bit better about that because you can't go into war and not think you're going to die because it, it could be anything that could happen. But knowing that you did everything that you could, and that's a question that I pose to every single... I eventually ended up in charge of a group of people on a very large mission, but that was a question that I posed to them. You know, when if you have to make a phone call to someone's wife or their kids or their dad, if they ask you, well, did you do everything that you could to make sure that this was a success? If your answer is no, you don't need to fucking be here, and you need to make that answer a yes. And once again, that's applicable to business as well. When it fails... Did you do everything that you knew you could to make it a success? And I think a lot of people can, they'll say no. That was my, my honest answer with ABC. Did I do everything I could? No, I, I didn't. But I don't look at it as a failure. And I talked about this in the podcast yesterday where it's like, I bought the building and sold it for double of what I bought it for in three years. Like, I don't, I don't think of it as a failure, you know, but that wasn't my whole thing. And, but you have to, what Jordan talked about earlier, have a self audit of, <clears throat> you know, did I do what I needed to do? Did I do everything that I could? And if you didn't, why not? And if you did and then it failed, well, what are you upset about? You know, if you did everything possible that you think you could do, what are you upset about? It's, a, be sad at the failure it's a beautiful perspective, part. being self-critical in, the, in a healthy, in a constructive yeah. way, right? Because it keeps you, keeps you accountable. If you're not accountable to yourself, what are you accountable to? Yeah, it's just a crazy way to have, like, you're the most... I don't want to use the word disobedient, but I couldn't imagine like a power struggle like that to kind of come back. Cause like, I agree with you, like paying attention to the people who matter, especially if you're trying to get shit done, that's like your number one tool. It's like, who's actually calling the shots here? Like in our world, it's like if an agent yeah. walks in with a player and his entourage and there's a guy carrying his dog, but his mom's there. Oh, hi ma'am, how are you? But where it's just, it's, I, I'm, I'm, I feel retarded making parallels to like me talking to soon to be rich kids and like him learning it that like yeah, having that's, that's your environment your world right that's, yeah yours is not mine mine is not yeah yours. but I think there's a universality to mortality that really drives a lot of my decisions like and like yesterday I was living in my car a week ago I was 15 and, and next week I'll be dead yeah. that's why I make decisions away because nothing matters but I kind of have this very peripheral, like, yeah, I have friends at OD when they were kids or, like, you know, got in stupid car accidents or, like, you know, something was laced with whatever. But, like, I don't have as visceral a relationship with mortality. It's enough to drive my decision-making cadence. Like, I, indecision to me drives me nuts. Like, if we were hungry right now, we pulled out some Uber Eats shit. I'm real hungry. And you were banging on about, ah, well, sweet greens or fresh kitchen. I'm like, give me that fucking thing. I cannot deal with indecision because it's not, and it's been such a valuable asset. I just couldn't imagine having to like, and I'm so glad you're telling me these stories now because if you'd have told me these stories while you were over yeah. there, I would have been like, <laughs> like a lack like, of information. Hey, we're, Marcus, Liam Neeson, we're going over to the Ukraine. Why? I don't know. And I don't know what we're going to do when we get there. 
but it's just it's I, and the, but that's one thing it's like perspective right like you know we talk a lot about like history books we talk about world war ii a lot mm -hmm. you know uh, you've taught me a lot about that and that's where it's it's the ultimate sort of proving ground it's like all right we want to talk chips down it's one thing it's like, well this guy could go in the first round it's like i love the life or death perspective because it's just like it's just the off switch so for me it's like whenever i have a problem i just call you and then you go, oh, well, there's this one time where I almost died, white phosphorus or whatever. They go, okay, thanks. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, going back to what you said, we talked about the informal power structures, uh, addressing the mom initially, that's exactly that on a minor level, right? Where it's just like... Yeah, you found the decision maker. You found yeah. the decision maker. Yeah. Uh, that's like kind of a common one with a lot of people, but I think that's very big in like... It's perception, right? That's yeah. you, you, you understand that. Yeah, choosing what college to go to, it's going to be like, well... Do they have a strong relationship with their parents? All right, well, obviously, I'm going to go get with the parents. parents. So. That's just like a very common one to know. But to establish that relationship is going to mean something, and that changes their life. That changes your life if they go work. Or let's say you're an agent or whoever the fuck mm. is now with NIL. I mean, now that's there's actually yeah. money on, on the table for everyone. What was the, what was the movie about Michael Jordan? Was the the recent one the, the last, last dance? Yeah, yeah. With his mom. the whole the, the whole sales process revolved around convincing the mother that this yeah. was the best thing for him. Well, it was it hit it hit straight to the core. So I look at it from another perspective. Is like I, I that's a projection that I usually put on because in my household my mom called the shots. Right? My dad's just very. Yeah, he's just, he's basically a mall Santa that just hasn't realized he's a mall Santa yet. <laughs> but I. I find if I go off of my projection and my instinct, I'd rather build a relationship that way. And if it's right, then it's really right. Then there's deeper levels of connection that stem out of that instinct. Because if I, if a mom is there, my mom would be there if I was any yeah. good at anything. She's good at, she comes up to things where I'm bad at it and she still shows up. Yeah. So that for me is like an authenticity. Like I don't, I don't ever project. Well, you're well informed. You well, no, you're no, well no, no, it's not even that. Own. It's just like, you know, what, if it's, if, but if it's going to work, from an authentic standpoint, I'm going to act from my experience because if their experience well, is the same as let mine, let me explain. I mean, there's, there's nobody. You can't discount how far you've come due to certain subjective proclivities you have, right? So you you've operated your life in a certain way based on your certain experiences, and that has translated well into your interactions with other people. And there's there's something very big. Same with you in war. You know, you have a sensitivity and a way of interacting with people that most people probably don't realize about you. Well, I, th I think everyone has one. It's just if they're perceptive enough, you know, to know sure. that that is happening. Like I said, the gym example of walking through. For me, like, I, I know for the most part when those things are happening. But it took a long time because from 21 to honestly maybe 34-ish, I would say, it was just everything was centered around, like, survival and just making it because I was just on my own. There was nobody to call. There was no... I need to borrow $100, I need to sleep on your, I don't have that person, you know, it doesn't exist, so it's just survival. When you're like that way, you're very, uh, best way I can describe it, it's just kind of cold to everything, when you're just trying to fucking get by, but when you reach that past survival point, where it's like, all right, now I can be open, open up a little bit more about everything, you know, and when you, you're able to open up, you can, I feel like you're, you can perceive better that way of what other people are giving, you know, like we were talking about body language and the words you say, the way you say them, and it's easy, how you're treated is very easy, you know, things like that, so definitely, um, I don't know, it's just a big learning curve for me, like the last, you know, 
three or four years, something like that, of, of a shift change. But it took, took me mentally changing a little bit to be able to do that. But to me, it's like I always look at Maslow's hierarchy, right? Yeah. And the signals down here are not nearly as abrupt as the signals up here. Like most people, are, when they make decisions, they're making decisions off of like like ego or self-esteem or, or, or social work. We don't work really operate in the bottom tiers anymore. Well, yeah, but you know, very rarely do you find someone who you, know, you go from the, what most people would consider survival. The closest thing I ever had got to survival was like, I don't want to ask for a favor for my parents. I need to figure this out for myself. I'll sleep in a forerunner. It's a very different type of survival sure. input than like, oh shit, the white phosphorus again. Like it's so <laughs> ridiculous a statement to say while I yeah. sit on the rockets. Like what, what's, um, certainly the white phosphorus is the bigger concern than the rockets you're sitting on. Like how do you, like how do you <laughs> prioritize that? But it's like when you've had to deal in this wrong, like as you build up onto the hierarchy, everyone is trying to survive. They're trying to survive their rung of the ladder. Now, if you've operated at lower rungs of the ladder, that's where the seventh sensitivity is formed, right? Like he needs to be very sensitive to the 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 macho Romanian or Ukrainian guy, you know, trying to take the lead without re at a real plan. He needs to recognize like this guy might actually be full of fucking shit, and he might be marching me out to my death because he doesn't know any better. But it's when you can see, when you can pick up on those subtleties, when you get back into this world where we go downstairs. And you know, someone might be uh, trying to be perceived a certain way, and they're, they're buying a fake Louis Vuitton bag, and they they you know, posting shit on the internet. It's like they're doing that to survive. They're just trying to survive a rung of the ladder that doesn't necessarily mean their heart's going to stop, but it means that you know, to them, this is what they know. It's like a, a death to their persona, like the sure. mask they wear, is as in their mind as someone who's never been in this lower rung as severe a situation as they could be in, right? They don't, they, most people can't comprehend, like I, I don't think, and I've, I've obviously not had like the same experience, but being close enough to enough tragedies as a kid, I was like, you watch people operate, and that's where I think a lot of the sensitivity comes in, is like, these signals are very quiet down here. But when you climb the ladder and you start to deal with people who are, you know, they're worried about social status and they're worried about all this other ethereal bullshit that, you know, doesn't really matter to waking up tomorrow morning, it, it, the signals must be so loud. Like when you get back and you start to talk to people and someone's starting to feed you some bullshit, like it must be just this massive red flag to you because you've had to f pick up these, you know, these more minute signals with higher consequences at a lower rung of the ladder. That's how I look well, at I it. That's honestly when I was younger, most honestly deployed combat soldiers deal with that. They talk about it, just the adjustment is the hardest part. It's not even like the, they, a lot of people, you know, they have nightmares seeing things, the hypervigilance, things like that. I, For me personally, and a lot of people I talk to, the hardest part is the readjustment into the real world. Part of it is that, where it's like everything you did was close to life and death, and now you're in the regular world and it's not, but it's hard to, you, you might know it mentally, it's hard to make that shift to where you're either the type of person who is overly aggressive, which kind of veterans have a bad rap for that. They're overly aggressive about fucking everything. Feel like they got to prove a point about everything and try to be tough about everything. Or they're the ones that are just so fucking down they don't give a shit about anything. They don't give a shit about themselves. And it's, that's the way of kind of dealing with it is that those extremes, that one or the other. It's like you upgrade, upregulate somebody to such a high degree, and you take them back into such a low consequence environment. 
what, yeah. and, what's and the natural hard, reaction? Yeah, and then it's hard to like find that purpose. And I, I mean, I had the same thing where I went from like military, and then I was starting to do really well financially to where I kind of didn't have to worry about it. And then what's fulfilling to me is like not war specifically, but that type of leadership and feeling like you know I, I can't make a difference. I know I'm very good at this type of thing. Going to do it, and it's very fulfilling, and it's probably. Outside of having kids, the most fulfilling thing that's ever happened in my life, you know, is is being able to do that and do it successfully. And even then, coming back now, it's like I know, I know the adjustment will still and is still difficult. I've been home a, a year now, like a year and two months essentially, mm-hmm. and the adjustment is still like okay. And I'm trying to like kind of me and Marcus talked about this uh, while we were doing a nice salt sauna today, you know, uh, but. Was like, you were missed. I was working. Yeah, yeah sorry, yeah. fuck me. You were missed. But it's like, uh, all right, like, what's what's next thing? It doesn't have to, like, keep me, it doesn't have to be this vigilant thing where I'm like, it's got to feel like war type of thing where it's just like, all right, well, I want to find something fulfilling or productive to do throughout my day now. You know, that's kind of like my own personal next journey, so. It's, it's important uh, to recognize that Boredom is a huge component of of the journey. Well, Jordan can't relate, so just hear about this Jordan. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> boredom, uh, not, Netflix, a TV. No, it's it, not just boredom, and I don't mean boredom in the f- sense that you're not physically active or fulfilled, but it's just if you're not engaged with what you're doing, not giving a shit, and boredom can come as a result of being treated poorly. You're going to check out. You might feel disrespected in, in the way that you're interacting with people, with your clients, you know, with your boss, whatever the, the case is. I've seen that before. And it's like I've, I've had clients that worked with us that just, you know, we might be making a lot of money from them every month. And they, every time they call and it's, it's a problem, I check out mentally. I'm like, this guy is going to, he's going to ruin me and my business and ruin my mental state every single day. Every time I have to talk to him, I'm dreading what's going to happen. And it's not life or death, but there, there is this, you know, in the business world, there's some financial and, and so, you know, obligation socially, I guess you could say, to treat them well and interact with them in a certain way. And you, you can check out. I mean, I've seen myself do it before with certain people. And then as, event, as you evolve, eventually you start to learn how to deal with them a little bit better and, and you know, hopefully replace them and, and find yourself as something that's fulfilling clients that are fulfilling you like having conversations with them you like interacting with your your students right how do you what's your strategy to re-engage after forcibly having to disengage like you, you know bob I, calls you now and like god fucking damn it bob i'm a firm believer in taking you know i'm i'm a i'm a firm believer in people showing you their true colors and you must believe them this is a friendship thing relationship thing if somebody if somebody shows you what they're capable of mm. never for a second think that they're not mm. i've seen this you know, and I'm not, I won't expand on it, but in business, very viscerally, uh, with some friends, very viscerally, I think we all have in our own ways and in the business world. And I know that if we start working with a client and several of our interactions in a row turn out to be this, you know, putting me on the defensive and making my heart rate jump and making me feel like I fucked up, you know, it's just all these things that do, they're not going to lead to me being a good fit for that guy. Mm. And eventually the red flags just become much bigger and much more profound. You know, you start to talk about this whole, uh, you know, this human assessment type of type of role you have. And I think that's, it's a, it's a wise position for anybody to be in as a friend, as a, as a, as a business owner, whatever your position is, like 
assessing people and understanding who they are and what they're capable of okay. is critical. Okay, so I'm like really interested because I've been around you a lot and seen you operate in the world, at least this world over here on this side of the world. The human assassin piece, we all agree. I think we all agree there's a sensitivity to it. And I think that's why we continually find ourselves across the world in the same room. Because it's like, oh, thank, so. thank fuck. <laughs> you right? Can. So it's like, but yeah. how do you, we talked about the self-audit. I'm really curious, like, you know, you said it up until like a year and a half ago. There's no longer. What's, what comes up out of the self-audit with you? Like when you, well, yeah, I, I am because I don't. Well, no, because I'm so. I mean, I don't what know. What do you like, hate about yourself? <laughs> yeah, that's Larry David. It real quick. Yeah. I got. Well, five no, minutes. because it's because you've been the most like you've been the most you two have been the most consistent people in my life since the day I met you. So the, no, 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 and I want to to use them against you. Yes, you leverage. Want, you want a final no, solution like, against us? But what gets me is like I don't know. No, I I, I know. You know. Yeah. Uh, one of the big ones is I. I would say for the most part, outside of combat, everybody, everyone will get a chance with me, no matter who you are. Kind of what you were talking about, like, to believing them. Everyone gets a chance with me, but the thing is, if you take, try to take advantage of me, or take advantage of me, or break my trust, literally one time, you're, you're on, like, a different circle of friendship and relationship with me. And that's why I was saying, we've never had anything like that. Like, you guys are the closest of the close to me, and there's a couple other people that are there as well. But, you know, it's, it only takes one time, and then you're, you're on the outside. It might not be farther outside, much farther, but it's not the same as just the closest circle that you can have because that's how I am, you know, and it's, I say about so many things where I, for the most part, I try to do the right thing in every situation, treat people right, because I have the perspective from mine and what I think would be their perspective, and I take it into consideration as well. You know, and like when I, when Marcus said this weekend, he's like, I'm just there to hang out with you guys, you know, and usually like, I'm not going to check my phone every fucking 20 minutes, but I just want to make sure I don't miss a text from Marcus because I know he's only here for us. And that's just like a friend respect thing to do. Right. But I don't, but giving people that one shot has bitten me in the ass multiple fucking times. But now I know it's like, okay, that is okay. If you do not value me like that for this, usually money related. You can sit on the sidelines now, and I still have this group of people that I can go to about anything and tell anything, and I know I know that they're not going to use that information to hurt me. I know they're not going to use that information to use against me in any way, and I know that they're going to be there for the positive of it. So. Is this something that, because I travel with two things consistently. I travel with a notebook that you gave me. And I travel with the pin that you gave me. It's the only thing, like, you, those things are more well-traveled. Uh, you've been traveling a lot lately since you've been like, oh, the feds I'm doing shit home. with the bag. I'm going home today. But is this something that you would sit down and, like, do deliberately? Or is this something that just sort of flies in? Like, is this case by case? Like, is there ever, a, like, I stare at the back of airplane seats deliberately. Like, I don't, I don't, like, I won't watch movies and something. I'll just stare there and sit and, like, deliberately not distract myself. And the two things that I always have in front of me are the notebook you gave me and the pin that you gave me. Is there, are these active processes? Like, I do that on purpose. Like, this week has been fucking nuts for me. Like, so much input, and I have a 14, 15-hour flight to Australia next week, and it's literally like I'm not watching anything. I'm just going to sit and stare. Absolutely. 
No? I do not oh. have the mental strength to just be with my own thoughts. Really? I, don't, I barely have the mental strength to be with people who aren't the people in this room. I would rather not have conversations with like people on the plane, but I, yeah, I will watch one through eight Harry Potter, no problem. Oh, okay. Instead of sitting there and be like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be with my own thoughts for any amount of time. <laughs> Absolutely oh, not. See, We're yeah. not doing that. Oh, I'm you all know, for it. That, I'm, that'll I'm, take I'm, me down some dark paths. Yeah, I don't have that, those that, paths. That I don't want. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we talked about it a little bit before. I think... My opinion is just like, man, I feel like Jordan just is off all the time because he's probably there's probably some bullshit in there. You're like, I don't want to deal with that. I'm just gonna go. That's that's my shallow interpretation. It's a luxury. It definitely is. <laughs> it's definitely a luxury. I mean, I said all. I said it before we started. Like, all my problems are down here. They're not at cruising altitude. I've never once had a problem in like a, a triple seven or a, an Airbus or anything. Uh, Ah, well traveled. Yeah, I do what I can. I'm learning. Right, we'll we'll get this uh, we'll get this wrapped up. I don't know how long we've been here, but I'm getting hungry. So yeah, and so I gotta go catch a flight. Oh, yeah. yeah, Marcus got to be out here. It's Big six, business so, guy. Uh, any parting words, Marcus? Uh, don't be a piece of shit. All of All you. Right. There's words to live by. I Just can't, I can't talk every about day. It. Every day, wake up, how do I not be a piece? Of, how do I be a good person today? Yeah. My tattoo artist always says, "Call your mother and don't fuck kids." <laughs> so, so I mean, yo, shut up, Brett Moss. <laughs> I feel like that's a, right, under my umbrella. Jesus Thank Christ. Shallow pre script. <laughs> Haven't come talked about fucking. Oh, wow. That is. Jesus. Where's the wisdom? That is. That is I don't know if that needs to be said.
always say to the guy at the gym, I was like, imagine um, you want a gym to go to, right? You've checked out a couple gyms. You come to our gym. You walk in, um, and there's just like some dirt on the mat or whatever, right? It's a gym, not a big deal, right? You go into the bathroom. It's just out of toilet paper, whatever, you know, not a big deal. This stuff happens. Just grab another one. Go into the gym. You go to bench. Every bench has weights on it with nobody around. It's like, all right, like this is a gym. This kind of stuff happens. You know, you do your workout. Everything's fine. Uh, you go, you want to sign up. There's nobody at the front desk. Uh, you got to like call a number. The guy shows up in a couple minutes because he's doing something else, right? You go home and you think to yourself, uh, you know, someone asks you like, oh, how, how was it? And you're like, oh, it, was, it was all right. Like, wasn't good. Wasn't bad. It was, it was like an all right experience. But what made that just an all right experience is all these little things you might not notice, right. but yeah. you notice and, and it's inside.